0: to the Soldiers of Cinema podcast, and I'm sitting here with filmmaker Robert Joseph Butler and film critic Noah Dameron to discuss what we believe to be the best films that were released over the course of the year 2020. Um, We're recording this podcast on January 30th, 2021, exactly one month after the turn of the new year, mainly so I could give myself some time to play catch-up, so to speak, because as we all know, 2020 was... Uh, an interesting year um, that provided many options for audiences to uh, watch their favorite films um, whether that be on streaming services like Shutter or HBO Max, we all know that they just made a deal with Warner Brothers. Um, before we start, I guess I just wanted to ask you guys do you have any reflections on last year and how did you find some of your favorite films and where did you, where do you think we're headed? In 2021 and beyond, I know the Sundance Film Festival is going on digitally right now, and I guess Noah, I'll hand it off to you, and then Rob, what, what do you guys have to say about uh, the last year we just had, uh, really quick?
1: Man, yeah, 2020, what a, what a, what a year! Um, you know, in a year as bad as 2020 as it was for just socially and everything that happened, the year of films were. Pretty good. Um, obviously a lot of films mostly, mostly have been seen not in the theater because theaters are largely closed, but right. that hasn't stopped some incredible films from coming out. So, I mean, there's, obviously we'll get into it here, but so many great films, a lot of them of course are smaller films, a lot of big films got pushed back. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's it's just a great year for movies and cinema as a whole, despite everything going on in the world with you know streaming services, everyone needs that quote unquote content. So lots of stuff coming out. So, yeah, there's, it's been an incredible year.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us on this podcast, Jake, and this Soldiers of Cinema presented here by DeFacto Film Reviews. We're very uh, excited and welcome to be here. And we look forward to doing more shows. But, yes, it'd be a cliche to say that 2020 was a very distressing year because it was. We, of course, we had the pandemic and every day we hear some heartbreaking news regarding that and it was a horrible election year that was very polarizing that truly was tragic on many ways but uh that being said if it was truly a lot of great movies that were very therapeutic for us that truly reflected the times that we're in and there was also a lot of gems that also bought us charm to get our minds off it as well and there's one thing i wanted to emphasize on it was a it was a stellar year for women female filmmakers which we'll dive into in the film as well and a lot of other you know, wonderful films directed by women directors that didn't make our lists. And um, we're really seeing more diverse voices getting more of a platform now than ever before. And what an interesting way to watch movies now that um, theaters have been mostly shut down and we're finding new ways to watch films. And and in many ways, I think that's why we've had so many uh, films make numerous top 10 lists is because we've had more variety in the other years. We have now more time to watch more films and discover new things because we have more platforms, but the true tragedy in that is many other great films are going to you know, have more difficult time in finding a proper audience because we have to have such a large sea of so much content and platforms out there.
0: Right, yeah. I. It's interesting that uh, looking at all three of our top ten lists, which I have sitting next to me, um, there are a couple films that cross over, obviously, some of them in the exact same spot as uh, as others, but there are also uh, a lot of films that didn't make certain lists between Noah, yourself, and myself. Um, it, in a way, I, I actually think it's, it's great that uh, cinema has taken this route. It, it provides so much for everybody to watch, but as you said, that also comes with a negative side effect, which is that there could be a film, perhaps like the Taiwanese gangster family drama A Sun, which is criminally under-marketed by Netflix, who acquired the North American rights. And we'll get into A Sun. In a few moments, but uh, um, yeah, I guess to finish off on that, um, we have a lot of learning to do, not only as a society, but I think the industry in general um, is going to undergo a lot of changes over the next two to three to five years, Um, and we sort of owe it to ourselves and audiences across the globe to watch as much as we can, and uh, with that being said, I think we'll jump into our best of 2020 list, um, alphabetically Woo! of course. Yeah. Um, since there are so many films that we have to cover, we do have uh, slightly over 20 films to talk about today. Um, and you know, for anyone listening, um, if you have seen all these films, number one, I'm shocked. I'm floored. Good for you. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, hopefully you'll find something in here that piques your interest that you will seek out and all of these films are available in some fashion you know with the exception of maybe one or two um, you will be able to leave your internet browser and go and find these films uh, as soon as this is over so um, in alphabetical order uh, we're going to start out with another round the Thomas Vinterberg film uh, starring Mads Mikkelsen and numerous others which Um, was met with mostly critical acclaim, although I'm uh, seeing it not ranked very highly on a lot of people's lists. I think it was somewhat of a polarizing film, and of course Thomas Vinterberg is Lars von Trier's uh, protege, so to speak, uh, uh, put out by Zentropa Pictures. Um, Now, I know, Noah, this made your top ten list, um, and uh, I I myself saw it very recently. I loved the film. Uh, Mads Mikkelsen's performance was possibly the best, uh, since The Hunt, which is another film that, uh, I'm sure all of us here appreciate, but, uh, I don't know. What, did, what did you have to say about Another Round? Um, and why did it resonate with you?
1: Yeah. I mean, Mads Mikkelsen and Thomas Vinterberg are a dream team. I absolutely love The Hunt. I think it's a total masterpiece and I can't quite say Another Round is quite that level, but it's exhilarating, this film. It's, a comedy of these group of middle-aged teachers they're bored with their lives and so they find the study that if they keep their blood alcohol level at a consistent uh, 0.5 then their life will their their life experiences and their mood will change drastically and we see like the highs and lows of what that does to a person and them drinking at work and you know improving their lives and their marriages and all this and what could be just like a very stereotypical comedy i mean the the premise is kind of almost like a riff on something like beer fest but it's played with such an emotional honesty with these characters and vinterberg has a really great knack for balancing really deep melancholic character drama with just uproarious humor i mean the scenes of them Drinking and just getting plastered drunk initially is so funny and it's so real But when it gets dour and more serious that tone doesn't feel Whiplash inducing at all and then yeah Mads Mikkelsen is incredible here his best role since the hunt and This film really just it It crescendos into this extravagant and super satisfying ending that while it's ambiguous and it may not be the happiest ending, it's so memorable and just, I don't know, it, it it just really connected with me. I really got in with these characters sure. and the tone sure. that Vinterberg sets.
0: Yeah, I—I I, before I hand it over to Rob, because this wasn't a film that particularly landed on his top ten, I, I wanted to say that I think what's most impressive about Another Round isn't necessarily how it depicts the... The lows of uh, addiction or alcoholism, but mainly how it takes a stance against uh, both um, underselling yourself in the mundane nature of everyday life and also condemning the over the top nature of addiction. You know, it's what we have here is a film that basically presents the concept that moderation is key, not only in drinking, but in everything. You know, you, you must moderate time with your family. Um, you have to moderate times with your friends and your co-workers. I think it's a very humanist film, and I, I think anyone that would dismiss it as, as a, like you said, uh, it, it elevates itself over a beer fest, so to speak, which um, is much more focused on the uh, uh, extremely simple uh, premise of a comedic romp. And, the outrageousness,
1: yeah. Uh, you
0: know. Yeah, Rob, what did you think?
2: Oh, yeah, I really enjoyed this film. It, it was highly engaging. I would actually go so far to say it's possibly Mads Mikkelsen's greatest performance of his career. And I never saw Hannibal. I've heard always heard great things about that, which I want to dive into that at some point, just because I like Mads Mikkelsen so much. But this film, especially that first hour, I was just really floored with. Uh, there's just so many great exchanges in that film, so much wonderful uh, moments. And just... The moments when he's with his friends talking at the dinner table, when he breaks down and starts talking about how lonely he is and how he, how disconnected he was, that was the pivotal scene in the film for me, as well as many other. Yeah, as many as well as many other uh, exceptional and greatly written scenes involving his classmates, which made me recall the times when I would uh, teach in my class. I always try to make it more fun. And you notice when he started drinking in moderation in that film before classes, he was more receptive towards his students. He interacted with them better. He opened up very erudite class uh, class discussions and the students were far more involved than they ever were before. So it was really a sharply character-driven character type movie that really had a lot to say about the human condition in many ways.
0: Well, that's a great way to end off our conversation on that film. I, I think if you are the type of person that uh, finds yourself invested with um, character-driven films, and specifically if you're a Mads Mickelson fan, I think it's impossible to miss another round. You need to see it. Um, So moving on, uh, in our alphabetical order, we have the Taiwanese gangster family drama A-Sun, which ranked very highly on my top 10 list. I saw very recently and it's um, probably one of the most exceptionally crafted films I've seen not only of last year, but uh, in the last five years maybe even. Um, We essentially have, uh, and if you're not familiar with this film, which most likely um, you are not if you live in America because of its criminally under-marketed nature from Netflix. Um, It's essentially, as Rob has described it, it's like a Taiwanese take on Place Beyond the Pines or perhaps films like The Godfather or City of God or Best of Youth um, in that it spans many years as we track a family over multiple tragedies and uh, failed expectations and most importantly um a very vindicating ending which um just goes to show the immense passion that not only brothers have for each other but uh mothers have for their wives and uh husbands have for their wives and you know just there's there's a lot to unpack with a son and I'm sort of curious to see what you guys cuz you've seen it um I guess you've been able to simmer on it a bit longer than I have um, and I'm just sort of curious to, like, what, what do you think this film is going to do in the next five years? Do you think that there is a chance that people will rediscover this film and uh, see it for what it really is? Because I know it's very difficult, um, not only for people to watch subtitles, but it's two and a half hours, and um, it really is like a novel in that sense. You know, there's, there's a lot to unpack, and uh, yeah, I don't know, I, I was particularly moved by this film.
1: Yeah, this movie really got buried. I mean, Netflix put it out last year in like January, and it wasn't until later in the year when I believe it was Ver- critic, Peter DeBruge from Variety, I believe, um, kind of reached out to Netflix, came across and was like, why aren't you guys promoting this? And thankfully, with kind of like what Roger Ebert did for City of God, um, he, uh, Peter DeBruge has done for A Son. And yeah, I mean, this film is just extraordinary in its scope and ambition. Um, one of my favorite all time theater going experiences one was when I saw place beyond the pines just of the way this how the story unfolds and the journey that it takes you on and this film really reminded me of that and yeah so powerfully acted so moving um it's not on my list it's a great film I there's one scene towards the end that is it's it's a pivotal scene that just for for whatever reason didn't work for me but it's it's still so largely extraordinary it's definitely something you should see
0: Rob, do you have anything to say on that? Oh, of course.
2: Uh, Yeah, I love the film. I rated it four out of four. As soon as I saw this film, I instantly did a a thousand-word review on it, which you could see on defactofilmreviews.com. I actually rated it four out of four, and it made my uh, runners-up. And to answer your question, I do think this film will eventually have to find an audience. It's going to take us film reviewers to push for that to happen. Sadly, last time I checked, the film only has 10 or 11 film reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. Which is a shame, and um, that being said, I'm very happy you mentioned those other films like City of God, The Best of You, The Place Beyond the Pines, because I've always been a big champion of those type of films, those passage of time movies that chronicle a large amount of time. and. Like those films it has that scope and that visual grandeur of the film the visual style was also rich it very much reminded me of p.t anderson had all these beautiful wide shots they did these slowly beautiful push-ins and then just cut in the right pivotal moments no it's a it's, it's a highly engaging movie very very powerful in many ways and you think that audiences who gravitated towards asian cinema recently with such it's as parasite and or even burning would gravitate to this and you know foreign films the last few years have really took off as well with Roma, and i really hope people that gravitate those towards those films will take an interest in a son so it's going to take to take us to constantly uh, recommend it to our friend one our friends and close ones constantly remind people about it on social media and hopefully this podcast as well because this film could truly fully connect with audiences if they they discover it it's a really spellbinding work
0: yes you you touched on a good point there it's it's quite ironic to me that uh, we have Parasite winning Best Picture um, last year, obviously, at the Academy Awards and we have so many people now essentially revising um, their film taste and going back and rediscovering films like Memories of Murder, which was actually nearly impossible to find in the U.S. uh, until Quentin Tarantino labeled it one of his favorite films that he's seen since he started directing. Um, I think there is a lot of uh, cinephile frauds out there, uh, so to speak, that um, really love to hop on a certain bandwagon and then turn a blind eye uh, when um, perhaps a smaller, uh, less successful foreign film comes along. And let's not forget, A. Sun was submitted um, to the Academy Awards for Best Foreign Film this year, so I guess we shall see if um, perhaps it finally does get the recognition it deserves in the coming months. Um, Got to yeah, say, there you know.
1: has been there has been quite a bit of buzz that I've seen just on Twitter over the past few months about it. I mean, certainly nowhere near the level where it should be, but I do think people have... It's popped up on a lot of uh, critics' top 10 lists, and right. I, I, do, I do think it's going to find its audience eventually. It may take a few years, but I think it will get there, and it rightly deserves so.
2: Yeah, well, the movie A Sun, for instance, shame on Netflix for not marketing this as, as properly as they should have, because this film is every bit as great as Roma, and it deserves that uh, recognition and and campaign that they gave Roma.
0: Yeah, I actually um, enjoyed A Sun uh, not only more, but I actually think it is a more accomplished film than some of the recent titles that we mentioned, but that's not to say uh, anything negative about those films, because Roma is considered a masterpiece, and uh, I think we're going to keep on this trend of uh, foreign films by talking about the impeccably crafted spaghetti western uh, you know, social drama Baccarat, which made both my top ten and Noah's top ten list and I know, Rob, you were a fan of it as well uh, this is just a searing angry uh, b- beautifully bizarre uh, western um, that came out of nowhere to me, I mean, you guys had been pushing me to see it for months and when I finally <laughs> saw it I honestly couldn't believe uh, the audacity that these filmmakers went to present their um, their message, I guess, and the themes that, uh, which we won't get into too deep, you know, um, uh, I, I don't want to spoil any of the uh, surprises that happen in the second act, but uh, I think if you are a fan of Quentin Tarantino, or if you... You know, find yourself a fan of Ennio Morricone or John Carpenter. I mean, there's a literal needle drop of a John Carpenter <laughs> uh, song in Baccarat, which is yes, sir, e- easily one of the strangest scenes in the movie. But, um, you know, I, I loved it. Uh, I found it very intoxicating. And I guess um, Noah, since it did make your top ten, I'd, I, you can start with this one. I-, I promise, Rob, I'll hand it over to you for the first. Um, uh you know initial impressions eventually when we get to some of the later films. But uh yeah Noah did you want to say a quick word about Baccarat?
1: Absolutely. I love this movie. This was so Rob and I got a screener for this like a couple of weeks before the pandemic. Um so this movie's really lingering on my mind throughout the year. I mean this is so breathtaking and it's so superbly crafted. It's this like scorching Brazilian, like you said, like the social drama with satire that then just explodes into this just purely bloody spaghetti western, and it's so gorgeous. Yeah, and I, the I cast actually, with,
0: I I don't, I don't want to butt in here for a second here, but it, it does. Hmm. I I think it's important to mention it does go full full on grindhouse at a few moments. Mm-hmm. And um, Rob, I don't I don't know if you want to say anything about that, but. Uh, it's definitely, in a way, not for everybody, but I do recommend that everyone check it out at least um, just to see if it fits their their taste because I think there's a lot to enjoy in the film.
2: Well, yeah, there's one thing about the film too. It's, it's really like a Godardian essay in many ways where it has so much to say politically and socially about Brazil's political environment. And like Noah said, we watched this film two weeks before the pandemic and as we know politically here in america once upon the uh, pandemic occurred it got even worse here so now looking at that movie we could actually feel like we're living in that reality now yeah is, never thought i would that say that, mayor. As watching that. <laughs> yeah yeah the town's mayor the, who, who privatizes the water and tries to bribe people with their votes by getting the water is quite telling uh, in the world that we're living in now but oh, uh, his billboards are hilarious oh they are that traveling really-
1: billboard that he travels around with yeah
2: Yeah, the film really is just a brilliant pastiche of other hybrid of genres, like you mentioned the Spaghetti Western, there's some Kurosawa, uh, you know, samurai influences in there with Yojimbo as well, which influenced the Spaghetti Westerns, and like I said, it's very Godardian, and, and it's a paradoxical revenge fantasy as well that it's just a great blend of many other genres no it's truly a memorable film and I wrote this in my review back then it's a film that will probably stay with you as time goes on I said that the night I saw the film and sure enough here we are a year later and I still cannot stop thinking about this outstanding picture
0: yeah Noah had this to say it's the international cast including the likes of uh, Sonia Braga and Udo Kier that bring charisma to the <laughs> screen and Udo Kier really does kill it in the film I mean he had me just laughing my ass off at a few moments uh Just his his sheer um, looseness, I guess, is what I would describe his performance as. You can really tell that uh, the two directors who... uh, um, I'm not going to butcher their names because I'd be so (laughs) embarrassed uh, because of the film that they made is so exceptional. Um, I I guess I'll just leave it at, uh, you know, if you do have the Criterion channel or you can find it on Blu-ray, please pick it up. Especially, like I said, if you're a fan of uh, Kurosawa, John Carpenter, uh, Leone... you know, the, these are all yeah, Godard. Um these are
1: all films. I would say Sergio you know. Corbucci as well. Oh yes. yeah, sure,
0: sure, yeah. There's some there's some uh Django in there, uh um, mm-hmm. y- Yojimbo, uh like Rob said, there's there's lots to enjoy. Um and it like it's full of blood and flesh. Uh and speaking of blood <laughs> and flesh, we are going to move on to my favorite documentary of the year, which was Blood and Flesh, the Real life and ghastly death of Al Adamson, which was uh, painstakingly brought to life by the people at Severin Films, um, easily my uh, like I said my favorite documentary of the year in a year that was filled with really exceptional uh, documentaries. We had uh, the Netflix film uh, My Octopus Teacher, which harkened back to almost Herzogian um, influences with its uh, underwater uh, videography and um, yeah, I, I just. Um, of all the films that came out this year, I don't think there was a documentary that really shocked me uh, with its twists and turns as Blood and Flesh did. Um, it's both a celebration of cult cinema and a really bizarre look at a filmmaker whose life was possibly more interesting than the films he created. And um, I, I know Rob did get a chance to see it, uh, and I'll hand it over to him if he had anything to say about it. Noah, did you, were you able to see this film?
1: I was not. I I have failed you all. This is the one film that I did not get to see. I apologize, but I assure you it's streaming on Shudder, and I have Shudder, as you all should as well. I will watch it as soon as I can.
0: Yeah, Rob, uh, what did you think of the film?
2: Well, Al Adamson is certainly an icon, Uh, and this film plays a great tribute to him. It really is a fascinating documentary, especially if you're into grindhouse old b-movies and you love independent filmmaking as a whole you could really walk away and learn a lot i think this is a film that all film classes should be showing to their students because it really is a celebration of independent movies and if you if you're into a film like ed wood for instance it reminded me of that but just like a documentary version and i really hope someday some filmmaker uh makes a biopic of al adamson because he really is a, a revelation in cinema this is a guy that's done many relics uh in films whether whether they're Good or bad's not the point. The point is that they have a true vision to him and a distinctive style that he really pulls off, whether it's Satan's Satis, Dracula vs. Frankenstein, Blood of Dracula's Castle, or what's the other one, Brain of Blood? Brain there's of Blood, like, yeah. Yeah, there's <laughs> some of his more highlight films, but it really is a very moving story about a horror director wrapped in his own trappings of uh, with the independent movie-making style that creates a lot of suffering uh and the third act in the film kind of talks about his um i don't want to reveal anything but just really what happened to him it, it kind of gets very shattering and devastating at that point and the movie's doing many things at once and it for the most part accomplishes most of that and it's it's a very well-researched film that plays just great tribute to uh, an iconic director like that
0: yeah I, I, to wrap up on that it's it's really entertaining, and uh, a lot of people could, um, could probably watch this film. If you're interested in true crime, um, I think this is a film for you. If yes. you're interested in uh, cult cinema, if you're interested in filmmaking in general, I think it's nearly impossible not to recommend. And um, the amount of people in the community that are trying to make films right now um, or trying to get films uh, made or are in post-production, it, it doesn't matter. If you consider yourself a filmmaker, if you're interested in um film in any way um i think missing blood and flesh would be a a great travesty i think you can learn a lot from it and um yeah like you said rob um al adamson's life itself um is more entertaining and interesting and devastating than i would say a large percentage of the films that have come out over the last year um now, that's not to say that there weren't some other extremely uh, spectacular uh, live performances or documentaries. I mentioned My Octopus Teacher, and we'll jump into Spike Lee's film, David Byrne's American Utopia, and his other film, Five Bloods, which uh, both came out in the same year. Uh, David Byrne's American Utopia, obviously, is a live uh, recording of um, the Broadway show featuring uh, Talking Heads music, um, and Five Blood's a sprawling uh, war drama um, both very different uh, but regardless accomplished in their own right the um, five Bloods did not make my top 10 list but American Utopia did um, we'll start off uh, with the five Bloods because I know Rob I know you heavily enjoyed that film and it came out at such a pivotal time in 2020 um, and I'd I'd like for you to talk a bit about that and uh, the history that uh, will most likely follow this film into the future.
2: Yes. When Defy Bloods was released, it was released within weeks of the horrible George Floyd tragedy that occurred where, as we know, he was brutally murdered um, by that horrific police officer. And I really hope that justice is served, but he put this film out at the right moment, um, it was almost like a synchronicity that was released. But that being said, it's like all Spike Lee films. It's a very empowering film. A lot of people say his films are really a call for action, which one, which one this really, really is. But I would say it's Spike Lee's most formally daring film since 25th hour. I would say it's his best film since 25th hour, as well as David Burns, American utopia, which we'll touch on as well. And Spike Lee just had really, a really great year, but it's really about these uh, band of uh, Vietnam vets who go back to Vietnam to find uh, lost gold that they left in their uh, last tour of duty and it just really captures a lot of things it it talks about all these soldiers still deal with certain PDSD and they're coming together in many many ways like a Kurosawa film it had similarities between Kurosawa just about the brotherhood between these uh, veterans who are very much like a samurai uh, group and the film just has a very strong strong performances across the board especially from the late chadwick boseman who delivers a uh, performance as a, a veteran who was killed during the war in flashbacks which is shot in this uh 16 super 16 millimeter film grain i think it was and then delray Lindo yeah, that's is just so yeah delray that's Lindo's easily so my favorite part that's easily yeah. my
0: favorite aspect of the film is the way it switches between film stocks and uh presentation um I know had this to say about the film, and I, I want to touch on this because this is mainly the reason why I didn't make my top ten, and that's um, Spike Lee is the type of filmmaker that throws any and all ideas he has uh, for a project at the screen, and while not every single piece of Defy Blood works, it's miraculous the amount that does. Uh, it's uncomfortable, messy, thrilling, and always profound. And uh, before I hand it off to you, Noah, to elaborate on your opinion of this film, um, I, I did want to touch on, you know, the, it didn't make my top 10, not because I didn't, uh, identify with the characters or the story or, uh, even the presentation. In fact, um, anybody that, that knows me personally knows that a, a film will instantly, uh, be liked by myself if, if it switches between presentation and film stock, I think that's <laughs> very creative and, uh, a good way to, uh, get the audience and the perspective of the characters, um, Mainly for me, it was just the structure and the pacing of the film that didn't quite uh, grab me, um, especially upon revisiting it in my mind, although I cannot deny the sheer power of the film, especially because of the history that will likely follow it uh, upon its time of release, which Rob touched on. But uh, uh, what did you have anything to say about Five Bloods that we didn't already uh, just gush about?
1: <laughs> or, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really love this film. It, to me, Spike Lee really is able to capture a sense of urgency that no other filmmaker is really able to. I mean, there's one sequence in this film that shook me like to my core to where I was trembling. I will say it's uh, talking the about landmine scene. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I that, knew it. The landmine scene just, I trembled. And Delroy Lindo is so fearless here. He's He's absolutely stunning. It's my favorite performance of all 2020. It's so extraordinary. His character is so complex and it's so nuanced and so raw. And he, I mean, Delroy Lindo has been working for how long? And he's just been a really undervalued actor for so long. And this film finally gives him the chance to really just scream at the heavens of his of how magnificent his talent is. And it's, it's just jaw dropping. Um, yeah, I mean, I... There's a, there's a couple story beats here and there that may not work as well as others, but I mean, this film, I, I've seen it three times now, and each time I'm just floored by it. Well, speaking of uh, Spike Lee, just to wrap up his spectacular year,
0: he did also film the uh, live performance of David Byrne's American Utopia's uh, Broadway show. Um, now, I'm a huge Talking Heads fan. Um, I, I love... David Byrne, um, Brian Eno, you know, I'm an exceptionally big fan of their work, and so perhaps I'm a bit biased uh, when I placed it on my top 10, um, specifically because it's not exactly a uh, easily defined um, story, you know, there's not a lot um, specifically happening to progress any sort of character motivation on screen, but... I'll be damned if I wasn't completely transfixed the entire time with the music and staging and colors and costuming. I It's easily the most fun, I think, a lot of people could have this year. And by the end of the film, there is a, a particular sequence um, where David Byrne recycles a, uh, a certain song, which I won't reveal, and makes it sort of his own for the times that we're living in. And... Um, it, it was particularly powerful for me, and I'm sort of curious, Rob. Um, what did you think of how Spike Lee? Um, do Do you think he was chosen deliberately by David Byrne? Do you think Spike Lee approached him? I wasn't able to research um, how this uh, recording came about, and I, Spike Lee, just is such a perfect fit for that film. It's it's almost a blessing that it happened um, because, as we know, myself and. Noah and Rob none of us were able to see the, um, the performance live so watching it at home was um, such a nice treat in such a dour year
2: yeah it's it's almost like a sequel to Jonathan Demme's Stop Making Sense which was also also features a Burn masterpiece was with, yeah yeah also with you know Burn when he was with the Talking Heads which is also a great concert film I would go so far to say American Utopia is every bit as great as that and I know that uh, Stop Making Sense is very champion I love that Film as well, but to answer your question, I would I, I couldn't find that answer either. But if I had to take a guess, it would probably be Burn. People reaching out to Spike Lee just because I know Burn is such an idealist. He wants to see a better world, and it just baffles me that we live in a world that has such complexities and prejudices and hatred. How we can't evolve out of this, it seems like in this film the title american utopia reflects on that but uh i feel spike lee was the perfect choice and what he does with that film is make a he makes a very vi- visually stunning concert film that's just so visually pleasing that it's it's so well staged like the colors you talked about just seeing uh you know david burn his 11 man band walk around with no shoes and gray suits was just such a joy and all the talking head songs that they redid were just amazing um the, Jan- the Janelle Monáe's protest song was quite amazing. It's just a very intimate concert film that is probably my favorite
0: in years. And Noah, you you weren't completely uh, sold on even watching the film because you weren't a Talking Heads fan. But I'm curious, are you a Talking Heads fan now? And
1: uh, you know how how did the film play for you? Well, t- to my to my defense. Um, I like talking heads. It's just not, you know, I just didn't really grow up with it, um, as much, but I, I watched it and yeah, it's, it's totally great. I mean, Spike Lee directs the hell out of this thing They're I'm curious to see how many different tapings that they use. Cause, um, I put this in the same group as like Hamilton where, um, both incredible. Um, but I didn't put it in my list. I mean, you could, you could argue it's a film or whatnot. I wouldn't just, dis- I wouldn't disagree the other way, but, um, it's uh, I'm curious if they did this over how many tapings, because it's yeah, a lot of these shots are just so extravagant. And, um, yeah, it's it's powerful. I mean, obviously, when he sings burning down the house, I'm going to, you know, start tapping <laughs> on whatnot. But, you know, I've just never been the biggest Talking Heads fan. But it's it's yeah, it's a joy to watch. Um, it's it has some powerful moments to it as well. It's, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, I will say I might have an answer to that. It's, it's streaming on HBO max and they do have a little featurette after, which is just a one-on-one interview with Steve Byrne and, uh, Spike Lee. And I guess they knew each other back in like the eighties, like way, way back oh, when they're cool. both kind of, they're both coming up at the same time. So I guess they've known each other throughout the years. So.
0: Okay. That's yeah. I, of course we, if, if we find out any more information, we can always, uh, mention it on a later episode of the podcast, but. Uh, in moving forward, I, I'd love to talk about the oddly callous, offbeat quirky dark comedy, Deerskin, which emerged as one of the most unpredictable films to be released uh, in 2020 and um, ranked very highly in my top ten list, which of course we will reveal at the end of this podcast. But, uh, you know, Rob and I were uh, very blessed to see this uh, early on in 2020, um, and we should mention that this is the return of Quentin DePew, who is the um, I'm gonna say surrealist uh, avant-garde filmmaker who <laughs> is behind one of my favorite films of all time, Rubber, which I know uh, for a while was a bit of a meme, it seemed like, but uh, when I saw that <laughs> film for the first time I actually uh, I actually saw th- through that uh, internet culture and um, I think Quentin is, is a very complex filmmaker that doesn't get the credit he deserves and Deerskin is one of those films that um, I feel like nobody probably saw except the those who were given <laughs> access to it, but it is streaming on HBO Max now, and um, I'll be recommending it to absolutely everybody that I, that I know. Um, it features some of the most <laughs> hilariously shocking scenes of any film I've seen, not only of last year, but uh, again of the last few years. I mean, I think it would rank up there with um, the climax of uh, the house that Jack built, which I know Rob mentions in his uh, de facto review. And um, I don't know, I, I know this didn't make your top 10, Rob, but it, you were a big fan of it and uh, uh, we had such a good time watching it. Um, it's impossible for me not to at least briefly uh, hand it over to you so that you can comment on that.
2: Well, yeah, with a film that's only 70 minutes long, which has the potential of just being a uh, exploitative campy movie is truly elevated away from that when it has so much strong characterizations to say, and John Dujardin truly delivers a very underrated and brilliant performance here, and that, that, that whole image of him wearing that deerskin jacket, it, it really should become a iconic image in the future. It's just a very eccentric and very bizarre film, and it, it's just about this man who's constantly obsessed with this jacket where he almost becomes <laughs> like this mannequin of menace because of it and becomes this odd he gets he gravitates to filmmaking out of all things he gets that camera and he looks like terrence malick <laughs> with that hat it's quite yeah, i, get, he, I yeah. guess we should
0: I, I should back up here and say that deerskin it, it has probably my favorite story or plot of the year in that there you have a man who is essentially going through a, a midlife crisis and he um finds this jacket which he is extremely attracted to and as somebody who does identify as somewhat metrosexual and enjoys fashion, um, it's very easy for me to see that uh, what uh, Depew is doing uh, in the film—he—he he almost gets a sense of identity through this this deerskin material, and uh, of course, the person that sells him the jacket also gives him. Uh, a camera which I mean how do you make someone even more manic uh, make them a filmmaker
1: <laughs> right <laughs>
0: um, so you essentially have a manic filmmaker obsessed with deerskin who is going around and uh, he his goal is to make every single jacket in existence disappear so that his deerskin jacket yeah. is the <laughs> only one in the world
2: <laughs> it, what's what's interesting about this film Jake is that it's not overly sh- sensationalistic it could have been very exploitive but you know the Depew finds a sadness and a rich character arc in the film that is in there yeah it's 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 very darkly comedic and also character driven at the same time with a ending that truly resonates
0: yeah oh yeah the the ending is uh, both uh, shocking but uh, it does make sense. Um, it's satisfying, richly drawn and sophisticated are are words that you used in your review and I would tend to agree. Um, there are tons of comments actually on the Deerskin review, uh, which we accumulated over 2020. Um, it looks like people are finally starting to watch this film now that it's been released on HBO max. Um, and, uh, I'm just reading through some of the comments here. Um, you know, people seem to be somewhat torn, but it does look like it, as it, it is at least garnering some sort of reaction, which is, as a filmmaker, that's essentially all you can ask for.
1: And and I will say, um, I did finally get a chance to watch this a few days ago. And while the humor was hit or miss for me, I mean, it basically just kind of comes down to your taste. I mean, it is a very unique film. It's it, it's a film that you really do kind of have to see to really believe it. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Jean, Jean Dujardin is great. I mean, what what happened to him? He won an Oscar for The Artist. He popped yeah, up on like Wolf thing. of Wall Street and he just kind of disappeared um so I mean he's terrific in it. I uh it's nice to see Adele Honnell from Portrait of a Lady on Fire in this. She's quite good. Um yeah, it's it's a weird movie, man, but uh if you <laughs> like weird, I mean it's it's for you. So yes, and
0: um I I guess, you know, sort of moving out of this weird territory. It's going to get perhaps a bit heartbreaking here, but we we do have to move on to 14 um <laughs> which is a <laughs> Extre- it's the polar opposite, basically, of Deerskin. Um, <laughs> what a transition. What, Yeah, what a transition. Um, 14, to me, was um, a very uh, deliberately um, cold film, and I know that might turn some people off, but it, it is um, exceptionally performed, and the actors typically are performing paragraphs of dialogue in a single unbroken take, which is... Again, this is often associated with the mumblecore movement. Um, and honestly, with not a single A-list star and a minimal budget, it did manage to move me in ways that a uh, few other dramas did. And um, I know for a fact it made Rob's top ten list. And uh, he, he did have um, just a, a few interesting things to say about it. Um, you say that 14 sheds honest light on what defines a true friendship um would you like to elaborate on that rob and perhaps you know why it was so deeply moving to you
2: yeah watching this film was a very personal experience because we had a close friend ryan O'Gwen, who was our editor at de facto film reviews who sadly died just last year on january 30th of 2020 and you know watching this film made me think of our friendship in many ways because it talks about the highs and lows of a friendship and it's just very honest and pure about friendship the film Chronicles the almost like a decade. It doesn't it's not really clear in what year we're in and how many years it, it skips is, around we, a lot Yeah, we know it's a passage of time film because each time we see each other they're in different Relationships or they might be in a different place of living. But uh, the performances by this film by uh, Tally metal and Norma Kulin are quite wonderful and their synergy on screen together are, are Exceptionally well And the film if anything reminded me of uh, John Cassavetes. It's the films written and directed by indeed. Um, film critic-turned-filmmaker Dan Salat, who has a great knowledge of cinema. I I read his reviews before when he wrote for Mubai, and he also wrote, I believe, for Variety as well, but uh, he did some publications for Film Comment as well. But this guy is a very exceptional film reviewer, as well as a great filmmaker, and I'm really curious to see what other films he's done before this. I know he's made some shorts and made some other features, but uh, as you pointed out, Jake, the film was shot under $80,000, and... That film dramatically pulled me in far more than many other dramas that were released that had the big stars, that had the bigger budgets, and there was just something about it that was brought so much grace and honesty to the to the forefront of this small independent movies that movie that doesn't that we don't see in many other films.
0: I would agree and, and Noah, to lighten up the conversation a bit, maybe you could talk about your ugly cry that you had <laughs> at ten in the yeah, morning I mean, watching the- this film.
1: Yeah, no, it was two in the morning. It was worse. It was uh, it was yeah, almost middle of the night. Yeah, I, for whatever reason, decided to watch this at uh, the middle of the night, and yeah, the the ending just really it really hits you, and it's
0: it's it's, it's almost so cathartic. Well, it's it's a there's a big buildup to this one moment, and you're sort yeah. of expecting it throughout the film, but when it does finally happen, it, it hits you like a ton of bricks.
1: It's unexpected in the way that it comes, but when it does. It, it comes and it hits and it, it hits hard, but it, yeah, it's an ugly cry, but it's, it's, it's very, it's sad, but also, yeah, cathartic. And it's, you know, it's, it's a good cry. You know, we all need a good cry every once in a while. And this film certainly does that. I do really want to, Rob mention but I do want to point out the performance of Norma Kooling, who is, I mean, this is really like her only film. She's terrific in this movie. I, there's, there's a star quality to her that I'm curious to see um, if filmmakers will tap into in the future. Cause yeah, she's terrific. And she does a lot of the more overt dramatic stuff, but it's very nuanced and raw and it's terrific performance. Yeah. Definitely watch this film if you can.
0: Yeah. And, um, I guess we'll, we'll keep on a, um, uh, a trend here with extremely strong female performances and talk about Kajillionaire, which is Miranda July's third feature. Um, I know for a fact, this ranked, uh, uh, quite highly on Rob's list, cracking into uh, uh, the top five. Um, you know, Rob had to say this about uh, about the film. It's you know, it's a truly distinctive vision. It's it's very tonally kooky and otherworldly, but there's something always painfully resonant and vividly real about the film. Um, I, I'm not quite familiar with all of Miranda July's work, but of course I did brush up on it and uh, saw this film. And while it didn't. Crack My Top Ten, um, my girlfriend and I uh, watched it together and she found it uh, extremely moving, much more so than I did, and um, it, I think it would easily make her top ten, maybe even top five films of the year. Um, there's something very resonant about uh, Rachel Wood's character, uh, which we don't see very often in not only uh, cinema in general, but even I feel like Sophia Coppola's films haven't really had a character quite like Rachel Woods in Kajillionaire, and I'd be curious if Noah and Rob, you would talk about that and just why it's so special um, that, that we have this film in 2020.
2: I think the film is very unique and, and a treasure to have in this moment. The reason why I truly connected with it is because we've all been in lockdown for the whole year, and we've not right. had much interaction, especially if you're a single person. Like, seriously, like right, after, right when the lockdown happened, I just got out of relationships, relationships I was in for three years. And it's hard to date during this because there's nothing really to do. So that being said, uh, <laughs> when, you know, when you watch this film, you're seeing Odolio played wonderfully by uh, Evan Rachel Wood. And she uh, starts enduring, enduring certain emotions that she's, that were once alien and remote to her. And she starts feeling affection. There's a wonderful moment in the film where she's getting a massage at a masseuse parlor inside of a oh, college it's heartbreaking. dorm. Oh, it's very, isn't. Yeah. it's in this beautiful low angle shot uh, looking up at her and she starts feeling some intimacy that she never felt before she's getting that massage because she's been abandoned she's never had that type of uh, love given to her by her parents who almost use her like a prop just to get what they want they're her parents played by Deborah Wiener and uh, Richard Jenkins who are these grifters they're, they're like this parasite family who are like the film Parasite where they go and they gravitate <laughs> and do these little trivial Hood Week jobs and then she meets uh a character in the film who's you know beautifully played by uh, gina rodriguez in a great performance and she starts uh endearing a relationship with her uh that it takes the film into a whole different level emotionally and spiritually and it, it, evan rachel wood has never been better i know some people think that the deep voice that she gives us feels a little bit like napoleon dynamite <clears throat> but, I mean, she tra- but i think she transcends that, per, that voice into a great performance with a great arc with a lot of dimensions and nuance and I just want to end on this note. This film was very much like a female variation of P.T. Anderson's Punch Drunk Love, which dealt with other familiar themes about once for once finding true love, finding true compassion and and finding um, companionship that was repressed with lonely individuals. And Miranda July just says so much in her hyper real surreal style while making it vividly real at the same time about the human condition and human
0: longing. Well, Noah, did you have anything to say about this
1: film? Yeah. As as someone who had a problem with Evan Rachel Wood's voice in this, um, <laughs> you know, uh, the the tone, the the quirky tone, it's it's a bit of an acquired taste. And th- this film, it, I, I did very much like it, but it took me a while to really warm up to it because Miranda Jewel I haven't seen her other films, but the, the tone sometimes didn't work for me. It is very funny, um, but the voice was off-putting. That said, as the film goes on, I think it gets better and Evan Rachel Wood, despite my problems with her voice, it is a very great performance and particularly the last act of this movie when it's more so focused on her and Gina Rodriguez, who I've been banging that drum for since Jane the Virgin first aired, finally gets Hmm. a film role that shows her dramatic chops is so terrific and their chemistry is so warm and so intimate and really moving i like if we're just talking about sections of a movie the last 30 minutes of this is among the best of 2020 i mean it it really yeah i had a lot of problems with the first half of this but it just it really builds to a beautiful beautiful ending so yeah yeah, i would recommend this
0: yeah she's she's great in the film and i think she's actually the highlight for me um She's Same not, here. not not only is she um, just performing in in a way that um, contradicts uh, uh, Evan Rachel Woods' character, um, but uh, yeah, there, there's a very subtle romance there. That again, uh, Rob mentioned punch drunk love, and I would agree. It's it's the type of romance that uh, you don't need that crescendoing. Um, you know, big moment, although it does have one, um, in, in the form of a, uh, I guess I won't reveal where it happens because it's, it it fits the film tonally quite well where, uh, where Evan Rachel Wood's character is sort of transformed, but, uh, yeah, I guess I'll leave it there. I would recommend seeing it. Of course, it sounds like all of us would, um, although I guess I would say that it is acquired taste, uh, like Noah. It's a very kooky film. It's very much like Napoleon Dynamite and, um, I, I still would recommend it.
1: Uh, yeah, if if you're on the fence about it, it really does it. It really does win you over in that last act. If any, if anything, yeah, yep. um, and,
2: and please seek out our other films, like *Me and You* and everyone we know, and uh, as well as *The Future*, which are both wonderful films. Miranda July is certainly a great talent. I look forward to seeing what she does next.
1: Oh,
0: we have one last film to talk about before the break, gentlemen, and that is in the. Uh, I guess P.T. Anderson, There Will Be Blood-esque, Martin Eden, which was, uh, uh, largely praised by many critics this year, including myself, Rob, and Noah. All three of us loved this film. Um, it didn't make my top 10. I, I It seems to be a trend with a lot of these films so far, but I promise, <laughs> I promise I do have 10 movies <laughs> that I loved, um, including this one. Uh... Yeah, I, I mean, Martin Eden kind of came out of nowhere for me personally. Uh, it's it's not the kind of film I think that was marketed very well, you know, quite like um, other films that we mentioned already, you know, Fourteen, um, uh, Baccarat, A Sun, and Martin Eden all sort of fall into this category for me um, where they weren't very well marketed, but they actually are some of the best films of the year. Um yeah, I, I don't know. Rob, did you want to start off with Martin Eden? You you really loved this film, and as did I. Um, you had to say that it has a virtuoso performance by Italian actor uh, Luca Marinelli um, as the title character, who overgoes not only a psychological change, but a drastic physical change throughout the film with amazing makeup. Um, yeah, I, I was very moved by this film, and it, it almost breaks me up that I didn't have enough spots on my top ten to put it in here because I think anybody... <laughs> that loves pt anderson if they love there will be blood um if they love character studies in general um this is unmissable i mean you need to see this film immediately
2: oh yeah this is the most aesthetically experimental film of the year also the most formally daring film of the year the film's shot with in super 16 millimeter and it just looks so ravishing on screen there's a lot of use of other film stocks because the film's directed by italian documentary filmmaker pho marcello who drifts into this narrative form and he's quite successful be, for being a documentary filmmaker like that to pull this type of stuff off. I just revisited this film last night. I bought the Blu-ray by the Kino Lorber Blu-ray and it's absolutely a wonderful transfer. The The colors just so, pop so well in this film. And, you know, you mentioned uh, Luca Marinelli in this film. He's uh, what a wonderful actor this guy is. This guy is a true Robert De Niro. Or yeah, Marlon he harkens back making. to De
0: Niro. Yeah.
2: Yeah, he, he truly embodies the role of Martin Eden. And this film is based on the famous Jack London novel. It's a really brilliant adaptation of that novel. It's a it's a great rendition or rather adaptation of it by uh, Marcelo. But that being said, the film is doing many different things it's it's a it's it has a lot of political subtext in the film it's a complex character study and if anything it's a just a wonderful and deeply layered film about artistry and the suffering the art of what goes into artistry and it has a lot to say about class because the the character of martin eden that um that marinelli plays in the film truly comes from the slums he's a poor sailor he basically uh wants to become a writer and everybody begrudges him about it and they don't have much faith in him. but he has a true passion for reading and he pretty much has to educate himself because he didn't finish high school and he dropped out of school at age 11 and you know and the film goes on his journey of becoming a successful writer and the film is very much like a semi-autobiographical film about um, jack london's own life
0: yes i would agree um it's Easily uh, one of the most visually pleasing films of the year. Um, I mentioned earlier that I'm a fan of film stock and uh, different presentation forms and Martin Eden was probably the only film of last year uh, with the exception of A Sun, and uh, maybe one or two other films which we'll get into later that actually to me deserve to be seen on the big screen and um, I know I'll get chastised for that uh, for some of these other films, but I'm just not a fan of digital cinematography. Um, I don't care how good it looks. Um, Obviously, there are exceptions, um, but a film like Martin Eden and film should be underlined there, and I feel like that should just be the golden rule now for anything that's shot analog. Uh, You know, it it really is exceptional to watch a film that's not only well-crafted and has... Easily one of the best performances of the year. I mean, uh, Luca Marinelli is is in my um, list for best performances. Um, if we were to do a de facto film awards, I think I would easily nominate him for best actor of the year. He undergoes uh, one of the best physical and emotional changes of, of any drama. Um, very similar to There Will Be Blood with Daniel Day-Lewis. Um, yeah, I, I just think it's a... Very nice change of pace that we get a film like that that's also shot on film that's not just Quentin Tarantino, you know what I mean? We have like, it seems like we have like three filmmakers who are allowed to shoot on film in America and uh, when you get out of the country, it seems like it's it's it just lightens up and you're, you're still allowed to work with that medium. It's not so chastised in other countries and Martin Eden cannot be missed specifically for that reason, in my opinion. Um, before we
1: cut to break though, I mean, Noah, did you, did you want to say a quick few words? Yeah. I mean, this movie is really, it's so lush. I mean, the cinematography is so stunning and you know, the one six, six aspect ratio and it has like the rounded edges so that it really feels like you're just kind of watching the memories of someone through like an old-timey like school projector basically and um yeah i mean i'll admit i i also bought the blu-ray because i had to watch it again because i just got so lost in the aesthetics and the visuals of it which is i mean the colors yeah like rob said just so pop and luca marinelli is really terrific in this. Um, If you haven't seen this, he was recently in The Old Guard, the uh, Netflix action film with Charlize Theron, and he's also really good in that. So yeah, I mean, he's a dead ringer for a young Robert De Niro it's yeah he's got such charisma just so effortlessly and this this presence to him that i'm right. very excited to see where he goes in the future but yeah terrific film um if anything just turn it on and just look at it yes because I mean, <laughs> it's, it, it, it's it's a great like folding laundry movie um i mean even if you it's a great story and it's very engaging but if you if you just want to look at something that's so lush and visually aesthetic yeah it's it's a sensory overload But well, that's not quite the best word to say. But it's it it takes off every visual, sensory box that you want. Yeah, exactly. That's the word. Yep. (laughs) And
0: uh, with that said, uh, we will be right back. discussing the best films of 2020. Uh, I'm Jake O'Brien, sitting here with Robert Butler and Noah Damron, and we last left off on Martin Eden, but we're going to move into a film that's one of the two films I unfortunately wasn't able to see this last year, uh, Minari, which is a uh, uh, seems to be a, a sprawling um, American uh, story, but with a particularly um, interesting cast. Um, I know this made Noah's uh, top 10, and Rob enjoyed it as well, giving it very high praise. Um, Obviously, like I said, I was not able to see it, but uh, I do plan on revisiting it. Um, A Korean family living in rural Arkansas amid the 1980s is pure cinematic beauty. That is what Noah had to say. Um, Exceptional, terrific lead performances by Steven Yeun, who I actually do like a lot and he was really great in Burning and it seems that he is uh, leaving his television roles uh, in favor of more artfully crafted uh, uh, indies. So I guess Rob and Noah, did. what did you guys think about uh, not only his transition uh, from Burning and Walking Dead into Minari but uh, just the film in general?
1: Yeah, getting uh, smashed in the face with a baseball bat on *The Walking Dead* turned out to be the best thing for his career. I mean, he, uh, yeah, he's he's ex- he's exceptional in this. He plays, yeah, like I said, it's a young, uh, it's a family, Korean family that moves to Arkansas in the mid '80s, and yeah, they're they're just trying to find work. Uh, they're trying to start up this farm, and it's it's really like a classic American tale that. It's it's so beautiful. This movie is just yeah, just cinematic beauty. It's overflowing with warmth and love. Director Lee Isaac Chung. Uh, it's it's this is such a graceful lyrical film. It's so absorbing and it's so compelling about this family. This young actor Alan Kim, who's seven years old. It's probably one of the best child performances I've seen since Jacob Tremblay in Room. I mean, this kid's just. I, he's, he's got something to him. He's so compelling. Um, it's so funny, and it's just such a pleasant, beautiful movie. It's got an amazing score by Emil Mosery, who did the score for my favorite film of 2019, Last Black Man in San Francisco. He also scored Cajillionaire. Um, Yeah, this is just a film that treats every character with just so much compassion and it's impossible not to get swept away by it. It's so funny. It's moving. It's human. Um, It's it's just exceptional. Rob, I'm glad
2: Noah brought up that that performance uh, by the child actor. It really is up there with uh, Jacob Tremblay. And I wanted to note uh, the performance in the film Gloria by uh, John Cassavetes, 1980. Remember how great that kid was in that film, Jake?
0: Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah John that, Cassavetes is... Um, he, he really showed... Uh, not, I mean, he's always been great with kids. He has a very interesting approach, but continue.
2: Yeah, I would say that performance is easily as great as John Adams, I think his name was. I can't think of the top of my head, but he plays... In Gloria. The, yeah, and plays the young kid in Gloria, and we all know that whoever saw that movie is a, truly a wonderful uh, standout child performance but uh yes yeah, steven yoon's also uh wonderful in this and um another great performance in the film it, i would say it's a standout performance of the film is the grandmother character played by uh, korean actress yoon yoon uh Jun, i believe her name is uh yoon yoon yeah, yeah yeah she's stellar in this it she she plays the grandmother she's so endearing and she's not like your typical grandmother she actually gets mocked by the grandkids because she's not the grandma who's <laughs> cooking the cookies all the time she yeah. watches pro wrestling and just does yeah. her own thing and and but loves it, mountain just,
1: dew
2: yeah likes mountain dew and, and <laughs> but, but the grandma is such a terrific character and and if anything this movie reminded me a lot of jim sheridan's in america and even better than that film mm. uh in america um uh, because it's really about an immigrant family coming in there, and like Sheridan's *In America* film, the very sem- film's very semi-autobiographical. Because we know that director writer uh, Lee Isaac Chun's drawing from his own experiences in this film, but it just plays a wonderful tribute to uh, American migration and really the American dream. It's not this overly cynical film. There may be some subtleties about some of the commentary in the film there's certainly some microaggressions that the Korean family deals with but for the most part it stays away from that it doesn't get didactic it's very graceful and well done and another great performance in the film is Will Patton he plays this devout Christian who always plays mm. but in and in the lesser film directed by um, an outsider that uh, the top tapped into this type of character they would have mocked this character and made him like a caricature uh, however it's not done with that that character's truly genuine and he's got he has a lot of dimensions where he's not mocked for his faith and i thought that was quite a relief and uniquely done for this type of movie
1: yeah this is the kind of movie that really just wraps itself around your heart and just just gives it a nice big hug i mean it's it's just a big hug of a movie and it's yeah it's so beautiful this is gonna be in theaters wherever they're open or safe on February twelfth, and then you'll be able to watch it on digital February twenty sixth. Um, well, yeah, thank you I mean that it's, information. It's, it's, yep. Sure uh, yeah. A, a twenty four is putting. Yep. A is putting it out, so it'll definitely get out there. It's getting thankfully getting a lot of buzz. Um, yeah, make sure you see it. It's wonderful, and well, you can speaking. and your your family can watch it as well. It's safe for everyone.
0: Well, speaking of the American dream and family, let's move on to the, uh, (laughs) ironically, uh, investing the nest, which is, in (laughs) my opinion, the best, uh, representation of a, uh, American family in 2020, darkly, darkly constructed, uh, with, uh, a horror film sensibility. Canadian director Sean Durkin returns from an 11 year hiatus with his second film since, uh, Martha Marcy, May Marlene, which is one of my favorite films. Um, and, of course, Durkin did produce uh, one of my favorite films of all time, Simon Killer, uh, which stars Brady Corbett and um, and multiple um, other no-namers, uh, which many I would deals. recommend seeing. Yes, I, uh, of course, recommend seeing those films, although acquired taste. Definitely don't watch Simon Killer with your parents. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is essentially just uh, this year's... um, I don't want to just, you know, break it down to something as simple as this year's Scenes from a Marriage, but that is essentially what it is, um, with a far more cold uh, American sensibility. Carrie Coon um, is my pick for Best uh, Lead Actress of the Year, hands down. I mean, she it feels like she stepped right out of uh, something like A Woman Under the Influence or Faces from John Cassavetes. I mean... Um, there's a dinner scene later on in the film, in the third act, where uh, the way that she mocks her husband, played exceptionally by Jude Law, is not only uh, unsettling, but it's hilarious. And uh, it's one of the only films that I watched this past year that was able to contradict so many emotions I was having while also supremely defying my expectation. I mean, I haven't been on edge watching a movie uh as much as I had been um, with the nest, I mean, it, it really gets under your skin um, and really doesn't leave uh, for quite a long time afterwards. Uh, Rob, what did you, what did you think?
2: Oh, I loved it. Made my top 10, uh, impeccably crafted. Kerry Kuhn, certainly one of the best performances of the year. Jude Law is outstanding in this as well. Certainly one of his highlight performances as well. I would, would put that up there with, uh, you know, like AI, artificial intelligence and Uh, You know, my Blueberry Nights is another great Jude Law performance, as well as Closer as being a true standout performance. But um, I I wanted to say, like, on paper, this movie might come off cold. And some people actually could think of this movie being cold. I didn't find it that way. I found the film to be highly engaging at all times because there there really is a lot of humanity with the Carrie Coon character, for instance. And this is a woman who. Pretty much is coursed into this lavish lifestyle because she came from a working class lifestyle and her husband played by jude law is certainly living way beyond his means he he gets a promotion but he's over projecting what they could buy and it causes a lot of economic ruins for both of them but you brought up that dinner scene which is great where It just kind of shows how fraudulent people could be. He starts talking about Anthony Hopkins as well and talks about theater. (laughs) Yeah, and and, and Durkin shows the facade of all that because people just put on a show for a lot of people when they're in these type of uh, exchanges with others, whether it's corporate types or other people uh, outside of our cultural realms. But, uh, you know, The the, the Nest is truly an exceptional, artfully made film. It's very Bergman-esque and... Certainly, I certainly think it's one of the best directed films of the year. And so the, the, the compositions are great. The cinematography is stellar. It just has great direction. There's a great confrontation. We call it the Bergman confrontation scene, which, <laughs> which, yeah, which we saw Noah Baumbach do that last year with Marriage Story. We get that great <laughs> tracking shot, and it just slowly moves left to right as they confront each other uh, in that mansion. And that use of the mansions quite well, brilliant as well, and it's quite yeah, suffocating. But-
0: I don't want to move on quite yet to the cinematography because you brought up a good point there about the confrontation sequence. I think The Nest is almost the anti-marriage story. I mean, I, oh, yeah. I loved I loved Marriage Story. It was one of my favorite films of last year, but in that film, it, it's got a, a um, how do I want to put this, almost like an Alexander Payne, very neutral color palette, and it's very bright and warm, and and by the end of the film, you do get a sense of growth and and uh, and it's hopeful, and very hopeful. And and the nest is is almost <laughs> ma- marriage stories like evil twin brother, you know, and it's running around and it's causing havoc and it's getting kids drunk and you know it's it's <laughs> it, it's it's honestly a very bull in a china shop kind of film without any sort of physical altercation. I just found it ravishly uh, engaging and. Um, and, and subversive. I, I. It might be the most subversive film of the year. Um. If I were to give an award with with that. Um. With that title. Um. Yeah. And the cinematography that. Uh, Rob, you were bringing up there. Um. It, it's shot in such a way. I don't think we've seen a film uh, shot like The Nest in a very long time because of its uh, marriage to the subject matter. No pun intended. But. Uh, yeah, uh, just very bizarre, subversive, dark, um, and I, I would call it a must see. Yeah,
1: I will say um, you guys like this film a lot more than I did, but I will say the performances, especially Carrie Coon, are just are stunning. Nobody can just stare you down while smoking a cigarette <laughs> quite like Carrie Coon does. I mean, she's so she's such an incredible actress, and yeah, she she's thankfully, rightfully, been getting some, like, critic nominations, and yeah, she she deserves the acclaim that she's getting for this, so.
0: Well, um, I I don't think uh, a lot of people will never see the film. I think rarely will uh, people dislike this next film that we're talking about, and I'm trying to find a way to fit in all the words from this title, but uh, I'm failing miserably. Never, rarely, sometimes, always, is a film that all of us saw and ranked extremely high, uh, on, um, well, not extremely high, uh, on Noah's list, but it did crack it and it did rank quite high on Rob's list. Um, I mean, this is a very, uh, unsettling watch. Uh, it's, it's hopeful and transcendent, but it, it's, it's uncomfortable. And, uh, while I would, um, recommend it to a lot of people, I think it's, um, I think it's a, a film that might uh, m- might draw a few lines in the sand for some audiences based on its presentation, um, and uh, obviously its subject matter is not easy to deal with. But, Rob, you, you absolutely loved this film, and I would love for you to talk about it because you had some really great things to say about it in your top ten list. You know, the momentary misunderstanding of women uh, women's productive rights, it's, it's such a complex issue, and... Um, when it shouldn't be you know and this film really makes a solid argument against that and shows the trials and tribulations of one teenage girl um well i guess two teenage women um who are uh trying to uh terminate an unwanted pregnancy and i don't think that's giving too much away but i'll hand it over to you guys
2: yeah that, that i watched this film in march of last year no and i watched it Right when it was released, it was dropped on Amazon Prime. The theaters were shut down. It was the big hit at Sundance last year. Uh, the big Sundance darling, if you will, that in Minari. But uh, this film is directed by Eliza Hitman, who is an indie director. She's done such other really strong films like uh, Beach Rat, which I highly recommend. And It Felt Like Love, which is also on the Criterion channel, which is also very artful. But she really is one of the most promising younger filmmakers out right now, one of the greater female directors out right now i really look forward to seeing what she does after this but um, that being said seeing this film in march and still it it's gripping today and i still not got it out of my mind says a lot and i actually revisited it that film quite recently and um, it's still a very gripping and powerful film and the newcomers in that film uh, the, the autumn character played by sydney flanagan and her friend uh, named skylar played by telly Ryder, are truly great performances in, in the film, and it's just about these young women who go to New York to try to, you know, find certain policies that are legal in New York that aren't in her home state of Pennsylvania. And then you talked on my comment that I brought up, Jake, about women reproductive rights. And, and I think this is a film that everybody should watch, especially in ethics classes, classes and in college courses, because this topic is often brought up. Too often people look at things black and white when it shouldn't be. There's a lot of factors that we don't know about and why Women have uh, termins, uh, terminations of unwanted pregnancies. Whether it's uh, emotional abuse, there's a lot of manipulation, and Hitman delivers all these nuances and gray areas that no other film has on this
1: subject before. Yeah, yeah. Norm, did you Eliza, to say
0: about
1: that. Yeah, this is uh yes. This made my number ten spot. This is yeah a terrific film. When I saw it, it 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 really stayed with me. Eliza Hitman. Is a really interesting filmmaker because judging from this and her previous film *Beach Rats*, which is uh, really great, um, that film is like a, a Jersey, yeah, beach rat. This this broy guy who is struggling with his identity and sexuality, and so Eliza Hittman really takes these like socio political ideas and then just strips it all away and just gets to the very heart and the center of some of these issues, but it it it's never making an overt political statement it's always just so center focused about the character at the heart of the story and yeah it's so raw and nuanced and layered it, this movie doesn't go out of its way to tell you everything you know we don't we don't know exactly like the events exactly leading up to you know how is yeah. pregnant this and that cuz it cuz it, at the core it doesn't matter you know, it's right. It's you're just following her journey, her and her cousin, um, Talia Ryder, who's also terrific. It You're just following them. And that, I think, is a really effective storytelling uh, device because, yeah, you you your ideals could be on either side of this. But when you're looking at this film... You're just you're you're focusing on these characters and their goal, and you realize what their what their lifestyle is like, and that's what brings you in. And these are the types of stories that I think really, are, really have the ability to change people's minds and their hearts sure. by just focusing on the actual characters. And yeah, the the scene where the title actually comes from never really sometimes always is one of the most breathtaking sequences all year. One single take, just devastating. Um, but there is, there's, yeah, a glimmer of hope to it, but it's so genuine and personal. It's, it's really astonishing.
0: Truly a wrenching work. Yes, I, I would agree. And if you are planning on watching this film, um, please do be aware of the, uh, subject matter and, uh, really just how personal and affecting it, it may be for you. But I, I think, uh, a lot of people will identify with it. And at the end of the day, it's important to see it, uh, even if you have zero interest in the filmmaker or anything, you know it. It is a a very informative watch, and I think if you skipped over it, you'd be you'd be missing a great film. But uh, speaking of interpersonal films, great character studies and uh, spectacular one takes. Um, I I was exceptionally surprised by uh, Regina King's film One Night in Miami, which of course made Noah's list, um, yes. and um, didn't land quite on mine. Um, although uh, believe me, I did, um, want to put it there. It, it would be an honorable mention if, you know, one night in Miami is exactly the kind of film that is the definition of an honorable mention. I mean, it's, <laughs> it, it's, uh, perhaps a bit rudimentary and in its presentation. I mean, I found none of it exceptionally, uh, visually interesting. Um, although there is some great staging and blocking Um, but Regina King obviously has such a great grasp on coverage and uh, character depths and um, the script itself, uh, the performances are just perfectly rendered. I mean, I was into it from the second it began, um, and it easily has one of the most cathartic endings uh, of the year um, in the form of a brilliant musical performance, which we will dare not spoil. Um what did you guys think I mean did this surprise you as much as it surprised me
1: So yeah I mean I um it's 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 interesting that you, see, you didn't find anything visually stunning So the thing that I, so this is adapted by a stage play um by Kemp Powers who right. actually co-directed uh Pixar Soul which yes. is in both of our honorable mentions I should just mention that um didn't and make on no my top 7 <laughs> Oh oh excuse me um, we'll get to it sorry we'll get to it No it's okay <laughs> yeah Uh, Lack of preparation on my end. Um, But no, this film, because knowing that it's adapted from a stage play and something like Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which came out, a great film. But that film is it tries to be cinematic, but you feel like you're watching a stage, play. you're very confined. This film, um, I really felt like I'm glad I actually got to watch this in the theater. I was by myself um and I just found it to be very cinematic um I really love the way this was shot yeah the performances are all just extraordinary um I won't say it's maybe as good but a lot of this reminded me of Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood by the way of it introduced you know the great sets and everything of the 1960s and Particularly with this film, yeah, it's about a meeting between Malcolm X, Jim Brown, Sam Cooke, and Muhammad Ali, who was then Cassius Clay, and it. This movie Regina King really rides a great line of blending in these different genres. Like, yes, it's a very political, politically emotionally charged film, but it's also like a great buddy hangout movie. It's a great like period piece, a nice throwback to like the titans of uh black culture and it's it's a really poignant examination of identity. I mean these are all Titanist figures with different I with ideals and they they clash heads and Yeah, it, I think it it's ne- important
0: to mention that you know some of the best scenes do come from the the clash of yeah um, of moral ideals. I mean you expect the film to be Mostly a buddy hangout film, like you said, and while it is, um, th- there are those exceptional moments of uh, um, misunderstanding between all of these men,
1: and I think that's where the film shines the most. Is in those yeah. moments. Yeah, and it's never preachy either, because um, this film, yeah, it's throughout. Like every character has their 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 ideals all laid out and it's never didactic in the way it goes about all of these and yeah it's it's just so engaging and entertaining there's um some really like there's a moment early on that i, I won't spoil but caught me off guard in the worst like oh dear like that it in in terms of a, I will say it in terms of a racial scene I will I will say that caught me off guard um, sure. But yeah in terms of a directorial debut I mean Regina King that she yeah directs the hell out of this thing it is if you want to just look at a film and learn how to stage and block actors yes. I mean this this is it <laughs> but it's Rob, a did, very uh, important film and very entertaining
0: yeah Rob did you uh, did you find it uh, just as exceptionally staged as we did I
1: did. I, it
2: actually made my honorable mention, it, and it's a really strong cinematic debut by Regina Kane. And I said this walking out of the film to myself. I was very impressed. It reminded me of Robert Altman's 80 films. And if you look at Robert Altman's films in the 80s, he did nothing but these type of verbose films, whether it was Seeker Honor, which was about Richard Nixon. He did Come Back to the Five and Dying, Jimmy, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, which was also a, based on a famous play. And he did one called Streamers. Um, that's all he did in the 80s. And that film reminded me of Altman in many ways. It had an ensemble cast. And then just the other day, it was nominated for. A Robert Altman award for best ensemble cast which I was happy because I think Regina King truly studied from Altman in this film and interstaging yeah. and blocking even that opening sh- shots of the sun going through is very Altman-esque and with Regina King being an 80s icon being on shows like 227 and whatnot I'm pretty sure she was ver- is very well versed in Altman because he was a very uh, you know pivotal filmmaker from the 70s and through the 90s but uh, no it's it's a t- greatly acted piece great ensemble cast like noah mentioned the standout performance of course that we all know is the sam cook performance played wonderfully by
0: oh uh, he's let's, amazing
2: yeah let's see odom jr who's a broadway actor uh but he really deserves some oscar attention you know right up there with uh you know bill murray and on the rocks david strithner and no man land and paul Ratchie and sound of metal as being one of my favorite supporting performances of the year but it's just so greatly scripted consistently compelling and in all around just greatly crafted and i like how she doesn't just keep you trapped in the room the whole time she moves out they go up stage for a while and then we get a couple flashbacks which would have probably been very sloppy in any other hands but it's those are actually they actually end up becoming the best scenes in the film especially a great moment where sam cook uh mike goes out and he has to perform a song on the spot and he gets the a crowd scene oh yeah and he gets the crowd back and energized what a mesmerizing
1: moment in that film yeah, yeah, it's I a very th- vibrant film. Very vibrant. That's the term that I used in my review. Absolutely.
0: Yes, it's, it's vibrant. It's full of life. And I think, that, I think that's the best compliment I could give to it because you have all of these iconic men um, who were very full of life at that time and they had these uh, extremely passionate ideals all uh, clashing with one another. And I will say my favorite scene of the film does come from a heartbreaking moment where Sam Cooke reveals that he... He actually feels that he hasn't lived up to even the ideals of somebody like Bob Dylan, who is uh, prompting <clears throat> change with his music. And it's uh, a very moving uh, moment, which, as we know, leads to the cathartic performance at the end with A Change Is Gonna Come. Um, so, yeah, I, I love the film. I think, I really don't think you can miss it. it just just because, I, f- I want to reiterate this too, just because a film doesn't make you know one of our top ten lists or something that doesn't mean that you shouldn't watch it you know we're, we are going through all of these to give you as much as you know as much info as you can to make a list for yourself of what interests you and uh, the films that you would like to see that perhaps you missed and um, if you did miss one night in Miami um, I, I think you should check it out because all of the moments of the film rock and speaking of rocks on the rocks, <laughs> Sophia Coppola uh, you know, with the return of Sophia Coppola, uh, yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, after her, um, uh, in my opinion, criminally uh, uh, underrated film, The Beguiled, which was for some reason uh, blacklisted from the awards season um, the year it was released, um, we did have the return of her with a very crowd pleasing comedy uh, drama, um, which I know ev- pretty much everybody was looking forward to. Uh, I don't think you need to be a huge cinephile to love Sofia Coppola. You know, she's one of the greatest living uh, directors that we have, uh, descendant of, of course, Francis Ford. And um who? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that guy? and Yeah, Rob had, uh, he, he said that it was a poignantly moving and sharply comedic film about a father and daughter uh, who sort of go on an incognito, uh, you know, trip in the middle of the night um, it's very subversive uh, and just like One Night in Miami, it takes place um, very quickly over the course of, um, I guess you could say a few days when the, the plot kind of starts. Um, but yeah, I, I really found it enjoyable and while I do prefer The Beguiled or something like uh, Somewhere Lost in Translation or The Virgin Suicides, I, I'm glad that people are at least responding to the film and it does seem to be garnering some attention. What what do you think, Rob? You are obviously the man on Sofia Coppola here between all three of
2: us. (laughs) Yeah, I've I've always been a huge champion of her work. I still love her work. I was very happy that this movie made a lot of top 10 lists and Bill Murray's certainly generating some Oscar buzz, rightfully so. It's quite a uh, return to form for him as him and Sofia Coppola reunite for their first you know, big feature since Lost in Translation. Granted, they did do a Very Murray Christmas together, which was more like a B-side, more of a fun <laughs> movie, but uh, yeah, it, it, while it's not quite as great as Lost in Translation, it, there's still a lot of ambience there, there's still a lot of her signature style there, there's a lot of character-driven moments in the film, and Rashida Jones and Bill Murray together are very terrific together. They they have great chemistry, their interactions are exchanges. The It's a father-daughter film, and we see Sophia Coppola make these films about these topics of uh, celebrities or wealthy people. And we see this like in, in her film somewhere, which is about privileged people and, and whatnot, but she's able to ground these into universal themes where it's, it's deeper than that. Um, but that being said, it, it out of all the movies that were released this year, this is the one I watched the most, just because there are a lot of moments throughout the year that were very distressing. And I would just pop that on just for a, great laugh it's a very warm and inviting film or perhaps her most accessible film she's ever crafted it's truly is a joy film it's you know like a hangout movie a screwball comedy and of course it brings that uh sophia coppola humane touch that we all love
0: indeed yeah
1: yeah and um the the cast is so terrific in this like you said rashida jones and bill murray are great i think this is the best bill murray has been since Broken Flowers, I would say. I mean, it's been a while I since I've seen that film, yeah. but it's it's been quite a while since we've seen him actually, like, truly deliver in this way. And yeah, he's terrific, him and Rashida Jones, Marlon Wayans, who I want to shout out, is really good in this. I'm glad to see him yeah. back in, you know, not just Marlon Wayans Netflix stuff, um, such as i don't even want to mention them but uh, yeah he's, he's great and he, he's great in this like he truly he, like he legitimately has a couple moments at the end where i was like wow okay yes you are a really talented actor i can't wait you know i think he's got another dramatic film lined up somewhere so yeah hope hope to see the the marlon wayans assance um but yeah sophia coppola really in the hands of another filmmaker this story could have just been a so very basic. generic generic studio comedy and even there's points where it comes awful close in a couple of times to that kind to that, that point. But Sophia Coppola, there's always an honesty. Um, in this film, there's a truth, and she doesn't really succumb to a lot of the cliches, which is really refreshing. Like, there's Robin. I saw this. We got to watch the virtual New York Film Festival, and there's a point towards the third act where I went, "Oh God, no! Please don't! Like, you're going here. Please don't do it." And then she doesn't. And Sofia Coppola just it's like a subversive sid- film. she sidesteps that, and it's very satisfying. Yeah, it's uh, Apple TV Plus. Um if you have that which I I think it's pretty easy. They're giving like year free subscriptions with like a new iPhone. So by all means, yes, it's a very enjoyable film.
0: Yeah. And uh speaking of enjoyable films for everybody, not uh, possessor. Um <laughs> uh, <laughs> Oh man. Yeah, we uh I, I it was we were always going to have to talk about this film at some point <laughs> during the podcast, but I I honestly don't. I normally I have some sort of way to bridge a gap, but Possessor is truly <laughs> uh, unrecommendable to a lot of people. And while uh, well, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I did get a chance to see the uncut version of the film. Um, I I think all of us are fans of Cronenberg, not Brandon, but uh, David. Um, And I had seen uh, Brandon's film Antiviral back when it was released. And um, I enjoyed the imagery in the film, but I wasn't particularly wrapped up in the story. And I actually really enjoyed Possessor until I saw an interview with Brandon where he came off very, um, uh, I guess, weak in terms of his um, directorial status. He he sort of just mentions that he likes making films because it's better than selling cars or working at McDonald's. (laughs) um
1: okay but is he wrong though is he wrong that's my question to you
0: (laughs) i'm not i'm not saying he's wrong but uh it it sort of makes me think you know uh how much is is this him truly passionately creating a vision and how much is it just him ripping off daddy's style so um (laughs) i don't i I don't want to totally you know get into talking (laughs) negative about any film i really enjoyed it um uh I the only problem I had with the film really is that I, I think it could have benefited from some additional um, f- runtime. You know, maybe exploring an additional possession sequence. And I guess before I hand it over to you guys, um, this is of course a sort of assassin type film where mixed with science fiction elements. Um, you know, there's there's bits of Grindhouse. Uh, sprinkled in with some of the grisliest imagery I've seen all year, so it's um, <laughs> very similar to something like uh, his father's um, I guess you could say Scanners, or mm. uh, maybe maybe a bit of uh, some Dead Ringers or video Videodrome in there, but it, it is its own thing um, it's, it's bizarre, it's violent and if you're into Midnight films, I think it's unmissable you gotta check it out um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed Possessor. Uh, if Believe me, you will know if it's for you um, and if you have seen it. You know, most of, I think, of all the films actually on our list, I think Possessor is probably one of the only films where if people were aware of it they pro- and they think they would have enjoyed it, they've probably already seen it. But <laughs> it deserves to be mentioned nonetheless for its exceptional aesthetics. Um, uh, that's about all I have to say about it. But what, what did you guys think?
1: Yeah, I have this really high on my list. This is my number three. I absolutely love this film. And, and if this is Brandon Cronenberg, just kind of like going through the motions, I really want to see him if he's yeah. really <laughs> tapped in because damn, I mean, I, so I've seen, I, I've seen this film a few times. The first time I watched it at a drive in and um, I'm sure it played very so, well. It it does, although there is some douchebag in front of me that wouldn't turn his headlights off. Um, <laughs> so I, I I I missed a few things. So uh, thankfully I saw it a few weeks later. Yeah, this is uh, it, the inability to really assign a true label to this is one of its many strengths. I mean, this is this is like an indie film with like the ambition of like Inception and Blade Runner and all these films, but it has like the real graphic grisliness of like yeah 70s uh midnight movies i mean if you think that head explosion scanners is something you <laughs> you haven't seen what happens when uh, a fire poker gets to someone's head in this i mean this is a really cerebral horror film that's really about the battle of the soul between andrew riseborough and christopher abbott who are both extraordinary in this film it's um I'll keep plot details vague, because I think the less you know about it, the better it is. I would But agree. it manages to be this character study about, like, loss of humanity, and it's nihilistic, but there's just enough humanity here. There's such... Brandon Cronenberg has really great visual language and a, and a storytelling that's so subtle that every time I go back and watch this film, I'm always picking up on little things. And it's not just little visual flourishes. It's always something that adds to the characters or the plot or the universe in which this film is. Because, look, I, Christopher Nolan is one of my favorite living filmmakers. I will die on the cross for Christopher Nolan. Well, that but makes one of us. Is, I, there there is something refreshing about a big cerebral idea that doesn't have to explain itself all the time. Idea. and and yeah, and there's enough here to where you just piece it together and it's enough. And yeah, I mean I I really, really love this film so much. Yes, it yeah. is very. Grotesque. There's yeah. They, they advertise this film as Possessor Uncut because there's no way in hell you could just unleash this thing and get an R rating. There is an R rated version. Um, I'm curious to see how that plays. I haven't seen that. I've only seen the Uncut version. Um, but I'm yeah. If if you really I I love this film, but know that this is one of the most grotesque and graphic films. Sure. probably of the past decade like some real extreme violence but i would say this is a true quote-unquote mind-blowing experience yeah did you did you uh have any similar
0: opinions rob
2: yeah i felt quite strong about the movie uh, first impression is i liked it but as time went on it grew on me more and more i ended up making a mention in my in my honorable mention list but uh, aesthetically I, I love the film quite a bit of course it's playing on like uh it's a like father like son movie. Brandon Cronenberg, of course, the son of uh, you know David Cronenberg. It, it also should be compared to uh, Dario Argento and Nicholas uh, winden Reffin whose uh, neon colors, the use of neon colors in the film are also quite visually arresting. Uh, and it's a Indeed. very, yeah, it's a very shocking and very distressing film experience. And it's just a truly memorable uh, addition into the body horror genre. And also one thing that uh, Noah didn't touch on, which I'm surprised you didn't, but there's a lot of themes about sexual anxiety in the film. And also, it, it, you know, he brought up Christopher Nolan. It really is like a Nolan film on acid is what I wrote my <laughs> a while back. And, and, yeah. And, and like and like, Tenet was just released like a month before this was released, I kept thinking of Tenet because it's dealing with different dimensions and avatars like Inception as well. But uh, it, it very much is like an ugly ver- variation of, of tenant and and very much as uh, exceptionally and impeccably crafted as as tenant was um it, the film could be looked at being as being something diabolical but there's something really hopeful about the film where there's a lot of characterizations going on in the film by andrea rice character who also is merged with uh chris rabbit's character quite well and there's a lot of dualities and conflicting tones in the film that that work quite well that makes it deeper than just being uh, a piece of
0: shock cinema. Oh I I wholeheartedly agree on that I mean um, Brandon Cronenberg I I will say this I I mentioned that uh, he was perhaps somewhat derivative of his dad's style and maybe he hasn't fully tapped into his uh, individual sensibilities yet but at the end of the day is a very promising filmmaker. Uh, very promising. Uh, uh, he's not a promising young man. He's, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, he's a promising young man, but uh, let's talk about a promising young woman, gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> um, this is, I think, unanimously between all three of us, this is easily the the best directorial debut of the year. Um, uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm looking through our list right here, and um, I know It's, it's got, close
1: enough to where I wouldn't argue
0: Yeah, we, we've got one more film which I, I is another exceptionally spectacular debut but uh, I saw two films in the theater um, from 2020 and one was before the <laughs> pandemic it was Richard Stanley's Color Out of Space which I enjoyed enough yeah. and, um, and then I saw Promising Young Woman um, in the theater and it, honestly, it was it was probably one of the best theater-going experiences I've had in, in many years. Um, and there are so many reasons for that. Um, and I, I, I don't think we would be able to fully uh, describe how subversive <laughs> Promising Young Woman is without spoiling it. But um, what I will say before I hand it over to you guys, um, what's most impressive to me about Promising Young Woman is we always talk about the male gaze in cinema, and De Palma is perhaps the master of the subversive male gaze, Um, but Emerald Fennell here has a female gaze, which is very reminiscent of De Palma, and I noticed this immediately in the opening credits, which has the most hilarious Uh, sequence of just these chubby guys dancing on the dance floor Uh, and we get shots of, you know, their crotch and, and their khaki, you know, their khaki pants with their butts filling out half of them. And, uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't help. I, I immediately laughed. I, 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 to the point of tears, actually, I I probably looked like a maniac in the theater, (laughs) but, uh, I honestly don't think I've seen, and, and this is, this is such a great compliment, but, uh, You know, Deerskin was the only other film this year that actually made me laugh as hard as Promising Young Woman, and I know that might seem weird because uh, there are some moments in the third act which um, actually, to me, harken back to uh, the 70s rape revenge films like I Spit on Your Grave and Last House on the Left where there's so much shocking material that happens in the latter half of the film. um, You might get it a a little twisted that it's not a total comedy, but I I do view the film... Uh, very comedically and uh, um, Man, yeah, I I loved the film Carrie Mulligan of course is amazing I hope she is uh, given some recognition come this award season and um, I gotta mention Bo Burnham who is um, Mm. possibly the best supporting actor I've seen all year who We Mm. are introduced to and identify with and over the course of the film Actually have our heart broken a little bit by his true intentions and his his uh, his history and his nature um, I think it's very brave of him to take on a role like that And I don't you know, I don't want to you know get comments from people saying oh It's it's all of a sudden brave to play a, a douchey male character, but you know it, it is a particularly subversive role and I think I, or I would hope that Emerald Fennell would agree with me and um, I, I would hope that that was her intention um, but yeah, I mean, the film is, uh, you can't miss it and it's, it's a bit on the exploitive side, but, um, it's done with such craft and, um, such a caring touch. Uh, um, one that someone like De Palma wouldn't be able to provide, I don't think. So, uh, Rob and Noah, you know, you, you guys can jump in. Um, I know Rob and... You guys both have it at the same spot on your number 10. So maybe <laughs> yeah. you want to go go first and then pass it on to Noah to finish it off. I love the
2: film. Complete masterpiece. One of my favorite experiences uh, of 2020. It's a truly cinematic event. And I wanted to note Carrie Mulligan's performance is absolutely great. I know there was recently some controversy going on. I forgot which publication it was, but somebody said that she was not sexy enough to. Believe it was Variety. Variety, yeah. Was it Bedrudge who said that?
1: Uh, sure. no, it wasn't him. It was someone else, but okay. yeah, some, some stupid review from, because yeah. this premiered at Sundance last year. So well, for, one thing, Mulgan,
2: yeah, for one thing, Carrie Mulligan's a very beautiful woman. She really is. Her performance in this is very convincing. And not only that she does look very fragile and emotionally weak just from all the trauma she's endured so that alone she embodied that as well so that was a horrible and gross misinterpretation of her casting in that film because everything about it is perfect in fact it's my favorite performance of 2020 it's very raw it's very vulnerable it's multi-dimensional any other lesser hands in this film would have just been a very exploitative uh broad exploitative type of comedy this is not this and jake everything you mentioned is so true i wanted to add that it's never mean-spirited either yes it's got an edgy side to it Uh, yes it has a lot of commentary about the denial of rape culture that exists within our society but there's also a lot of nuance and just vulnerable moments in this film where mulligan makes it very inviting her her romance that she sparks with bo burnham gives a film a lot of hope and i don't want to spoil too much about this movie because i think the less you know about it the better it is i really didn't know too much about this movie i know it was supposed to be released and i saw i didn't really pay attention to the trailer because i really wanted to see this film but uh, it was a very rewarding experience where i was completely devastated and shocked at many things that happened and please do not read any spoilers into this movie going not knowing anything the less you know the better it will be but i will say that third act is just so mesmerizing almost everything about this film is quite memorable and Carrie Mulligan, if she does not get an Oscar nomination for this film, there will be no justice. It's just truly a stellar piece of filmmaking on all levels.
1: Completely agree. Noah? Yeah, I yeah, I true I really love this movie. Um it's I described it in my review as the cinematic equivalent to a Molotov cocktail pointed right at rape <laughs> culture and institutionalized misogyny. Yeah, this is thrilling and such a fierce filmmaking debut from Emerald Fennell. She was a, a showrunner for one of the seasons of Killing Eve, which I haven't seen, but I heard is great. And she's also an actress herself. She's on Netflix as The Crown. She plays uh, Camilla, not Queen Camilla, sorry. But anyway, um, yeah, this is a terrific film. It has my the best use of music of any movie too i mean from oh, yeah. the trailer it's got that great violin cover of britney spears toxic which is in the movie and is used perfectly <laughs> got it has um just amazing i mean it it finally does justice by the greatness that is paris hilton stars are blind thank god um This, I mean, we realistically, we could have like a three hour conversation just about this movie. Obviously, for the sake of time, we're not going to be able to do that. But I'm glad that people are seeing this film. I mean, it's in theaters wherever they're open, but it's also available as a premium VOD. You can rent it for 20 bucks and it's so worth it. This is a film that, yeah, it was initially supposed to come out back in April before the pandemic. But now it came out over Christmas and it. I think it's one of the films that benefited from that because uh, I mean, if we're just talking Oscar standpoint, I mean, I think the support for Carrie Mulligan is there. I hope she'll get a nomination. I think she will, but this is just, it's, it's so entertaining and so funny. It's so haunting and stomach churning that it it has these, it has big laughs and shocks and anger and cheers. It's, It's pretty much everything you want from a movie. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, it's hard to watch and yet impossible to look away from. This is a film that is going to make its big dent in pop culture. I think we're already starting to begin to see it. And I think Carrie Mulligan in that nurse outfit at the ending is going to become a future Halloween uh, staple. And I am here for it.
0: (laughs) Yes, man. It's a film with some serious soul, baby. Uh, Probably, you know... The most. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm cracking up. I'm, I'm trying to keep it together with these transitions. Look, it's it's a uh, great
1: movie, and it, and it oh I I see what you're doing. Okay. It's it's okay. a it's
0: <laughs> it's a it's a soulful film, much like uh, another film <laughs> that came out this year from everyone's favorite Disney Pixar. Um, I I know we're we're breezing through some of these, but I mean. Go see Promising Young Woman, bite the hospital fee if you need to, <laughs> um, you know, wear a mask, just make sure uh, that you see it in some form. Uh, and with that being said, you know, Disney Pixar Soul is another film that I, I think... Um, we unanimously agree is is one of their best that they've done. I mean, I was in a real rut with Pixar over the last five or so years. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it Inside Out just completely underwhelmed me. Um, then you had hmm. stuff like The Good Dinosaur and uh, oh, Onward, which was completely forgotten instantly after <laughs> its release. Um, I liked I liked Onward. Oh, well, I'm not cute. saying I'm I'm sure it's I'm sure it's cute, but uh, and then you have these films. <laughs> Then you have these films like Soul, which are just so beautifully realized. Um, I mean, I, I watched the film, and it brought me back to that sense of childhood wonder where you're watching Finding Nemo or Toy Story or uh, Up or something like that for the first time. And, um, I, I mean, there's something to be said just about the lighting alone. I mean... The, the jazz mm. club sequence in the first 10 minutes where they get there and the the light is hitting the skin of these digital models is just... It, it made my jaw drop, and I that's it's so cliche to say that, but um, this was the first animated film I think I've ever seen that actually made me uh, look at the models, the animated characters, as real actors. You know, I could completely hear Jamie Foxx. I could... I could feel his presence and in the in the expressions that the animations were making um, it's, un, it's it's so unparalleledly imaginative in a way that only Pixar can do and uh, I, I think for that reason um, it's probably their best since the mid-2000s uh, I mean uh, Rob I know you agree with me on that um, it, it didn't make your top 10 but I'm sure I'm sure it's an honor a high honorable mention from you what, what did you think
2: yeah i made my runners up it was very close possibly making my top 10. i do consider it to be pixar's best since finding nemo which i know is a bold thing to say considering how up is also wonderful noah is a huge champion of toy story three and four which Mm -hmm. i also enjoy those films but the reason why i connected with this film is because i'm very much into metaphysics and I'm, i'm very much, as you guys know, I'm a very existential type of person, so when I see these type of contemplative themes in films, I warm up to them and for Pixar to really tap into these very high-minded issues, which I cannot believe Pixar put this out for a kid's film. <laughs> I really can't believe it, yeah. Yeah, releasing it on Christmas, like could you imagine being six years old and they're talking about uh, afterlife, yeah. after-body experiences? It's just quite baffling, but nevertheless, it's a highly sophisticated film that brings a lot of joy and reassurance and I watched this film on Christmas while it had a lot of um it deals with some dark themes but it there's a lot of light at the end of the tunnel at the end of this film and it, and, and it was really weird because I watched this film the night after I revisited my favorite Christmas movie of all time it's a wonderful life and it's very similar mm. to that it's almost like a modern uh rendition of that just without the Christmas themes involved but um it's just a very life-affirming movie that kind of shows our purpose of life and just a lot of great little insights and moments into the human experience in that film. And the animation of course is stellar and Pete doctor and uh, Kent powers are really a wonderful duo together and uh, great voice acting talent as well by Jamie Foxx. And of course, uh, Tina Fey was wonderful. It was just as wonderful as Amy Poehler and was as joy in her performance in Inside Out. And we also uh, have many other memorable characters in that film but truly a, a vivid and, Mesmerizing Pixar experience for sure.
1: Yeah, of all the films that we've talked about, this is the one that I feel like I need to watch again the most. I mean, I I love this movie. I only saw it once. I've been meaning to watch it again just because yeah this i would say this film is frustratingly imaginative because for people like us that want to make movies and i see this i'm like well, what the hell i'm never going to come up with something like that yeah. like it makes me mad just how imaginative this movie is yeah i can't imagine like an eight year old watching this film and really contemplate like yeah there's a middle chunk where it becomes a more traditional animated like fish you know, body swapping film but right. that's still done exceptionally well but all the stuff that takes place in this uh like this, the soul and training, the, like the, the universe that they're in, it's, it's stunning. And that score by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross is genius. Like, and the way that it meshes with the jazz stuff, which is so impeccably crafted. I mean, just if you go on Disney plus and you watch like the behind the scenes stuff, it's, it's, yeah, it's just incredible. I mean, I, I, there's I have a couple issues with maybe the very ending but I need to watch it again to really know if I have an issue or not with it just because it might work differently um, getting the whole context but yeah this is a very dense movie like that's one of the reasons i want to watch it again because it's so much to take in that i'm like god i can't imagine a fan like the conversations that parents would have with their small children after watching some but it's those necessary conversations and it's conversations that i'm very curious to see how it's this film is going to impact generations Moving forward, like, yeah, like Jake and I, when we were kids, we had Finding Nemo and Toy Story and all those films, but they aren't as existentially dense as this film, which really just lays out ideas of death and, you know, that entire process. So, yeah, this is, it's a stunning film. And I, yeah, I do have to say, some of the best vo- uh, voice acting in any animated film i've seen in a long time particularly sure. jamie foxx and tina fey so terrific yeah well, i mean this great. is this this is an extraordinary movie um but yeah i still want to see it again because there's so much to chew on
0: sure yeah it's it's a very dense film i'm glad that you brought up the score by Trent Naticus. i mean i think it's probably their best since the social network i i would am, agree yeah i am of course a huge fan of not only Trent Naticus, but Nine Inch Nails, and I think this fits right in with their MO. Um, you know, it's it's got that very haunting, almost ghostly sound to it, and uh, um, I honestly can't think of a better pairing of uh, material and composer. Um, the whole film, the whole picture sounds great uh, across the board, and speaking of films that are heavily focused on sound, we have what I was referencing earlier as, as possibly <laughs> the greatest debut of, of the year, and that's uh, Sound of Metal. Um, I mean, I, uh, of course, uh, this, this comes from um, the uh, writer, uh, uh, one of the co writers of uh, Place Beyond the Pines, um, which we have also mentioned earlier in, in the uh, podcast with a Sun. Um, this is his directorial debut. Um, Noah, it ranked extremely, uh, high on your list. Mm. Uh, you know, a Darius Mauder is probably, uh, someone to watch, not probably, but he's, you know, he's going to launch, I think. Uh, and, uh, Riz Ahmed is absolutely on top of his game here. Um, it has the most sensationally heartbreaking opening act of a film all year, Mm. I think. Um, and it's somehow, uh, digs itself not only out of that hole, but it crawls into another hole of contemplation, and it it ends up sort of resting there in this humanist state that is um, completely profound and heartwarming and life-affirming, and for a movie that has so much existential themes and uh, a, uh, addiction, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of things to cover in Sound of Metal, uh, especially its incredible title which has multiple meanings as the film goes along um yeah i really was swept away by this film and uh it, it's it, it did crack my top 10 um as it should i think every critic's top 10 list um yeah i, I don't know uh no it ranked very highly for you so i think i'll let you mm-hmm. start off with this one
1: yeah this is such a profound experience and um yeah Riz Ahmed is this drummer who has very sudden hearing loss. And as someone who has had hearing issues growing up, I had endless tubes in my ears and surgeries and all that. The scenes of like early on when he's going into the, to the, the testing booth and the little sounds like the use of sound in this film is so, it's so extraordinary. It's such an achievement um, on an audio level among everything else just how natural it is and just i'm i could watch an entire like five hour documentary about the sound mixing of this film it's so exceptional but it it, it's not a gimmick film there's such a raw vulnerable vulnerability to not only riz ahmed's performance but to this character this guy who has this gift that defines who he is And But then how do you adjust to a new reality without that gift? How do you move forward? How do you find new meaning in your life? And it's, yeah, like I said, it's so profound. Riz Ahmed is uh, just otherworldly here.
0: Yeah, I wanted to quickly, just briefly touch on this. Um, It's obviously, like you said, very profound and um, relatable to to many people, but it, it can also be lumped in Um, I I mentioned it as as a very humanist and um, existential film, but it could very well be lumped in with sickness films uh, like uh, like Mm -hmm. Todd Haynes Safe, um, which which Rob brings up um, in his review. And I'd like to see what Rob has to say, because it did remind me of Safe and uh, Riz Ahmed's Mm -hmm. performance reminded me of Julianne Morris to an extent. And you obviously have a filmmaker here who is drawing from multiple influences um, while crafting something wholly unique in the auditory department. So yeah, Rob, I don't know. What, what Do you have anything to say about that?
2: Yeah, I love Sound of Metal. It made my top 10. Rez Ahmed is my favorite uh, lead male performance of the year. Darius Marger, certainly a crowning at- achievement in his directorial debut year. And as you mentioned, he was a co-writer in The Place Beyond the Pines. We actually see some of those sensibilities carried through in this movie. You know, you have the blonde hair, which is very much kind of yeah. similar to uh, Ryan Gosling's character. The tattoos. And, yeah, the yeah. tattoos. And both characters are on the go as well. And it's a very raw film as well. And um, what could have easily been like an Oscar bait disease movie is truly transcended and elevated away from being that just because of how raw and nuanced the, the film really is. It's very genuine where, you know, it's coming from a very honest and and humble place and you brought up the film Safe by Todd Haynes which is obviously one of his best films it's very similar that way as well because in in that film Julianne Moore goes outside on this in this camp she lives in this uh, place uh, in this uh, property where there's a community of people who share her illnesses and they try to uh, come together and and you know, basically rise out of their conditions. And that, and this happens as well. And we have a character that's a leader of the deaf community in the film played by, uh, Paul, uh, Rachi. Is that how you pronounce his last name? Uh,
0: I, yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Um, Isn't
2: he wonderful in that film? Like there's so many great exchanges between him and Ruben, which is plays played by, uh, Riz Ahmed and just seeing, just experiencing his journey and his honesty, odyssey of his deafness and his illness in this film as he becomes a he starts off as a successful heavy metal drummer where he's in a, in a band with his, uh, only bandmate played by his girlfriend Olivia Cook and they go so good oh she's so wonderful wonderful Olivia Cook is so good in this I watched that a second time and her performance really stood out even more this the second time for me because I was really Mm -hmm. focused on Riz the first time but my gosh Riz Ahmed is just a truly stellar actor and we saw him of course in Nightcrawler he should have been nominated for supporting actor at least got some type of Oscar consideration for that but he didn't sadly but uh, my gosh what a truly powerful and gripping performance yeah. one of my favorite endings of, the, of any film of this year too.
1: I was gonna say, yeah, it's so heartbreaking, especially that stuff with him and Olivia Cook is so heartbreaking. Yes. and then it's it, it shatters your heart, but it's able to slowly put rebuild it together it. by the end. It yeah, yeah, it certainly does.
0: Yeah, and and of films, you know, that often mimic that, you know, that structure. I think Sound of Metal stands out mainly because. Um, a lot of these changes do come in the final act when, in traditional films, the protagonist is already overcoming some of these sensibilities. But by the end of the film, you really get the sense that it, there really is no right or wrong structure to this character. You know, he is, just by the end of the film, without spoiling anything, sort of figuring things out. And so it, it really is special in that sense. It's, it's not just a film with a traditional... Uh, a protagonist, you know, um, falls into the um, uh, the new world, out of the ordinary world, and he has to make his way back into it with basic, you know, uh, mon- just completely mundane screenwriting structure, it, it really has some interesting act breaks, and by the end, um, it's completely transcendent.
1: There's really um, no other film like it.
0: Yeah, I would agree, and... Um, you know, of of all the films that sort of put you into the mind or the uh, the world of other people, I, I think that you know Sound of Metal is really one of the best films of last year that does that the best. You know, um, uh, specifically in the auditory department. So if you haven't seen Sound of Metal, I highly recommend it. Um, take it. With Prime you. Video. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Take it with you to the ends of the earth. You see what I did there? That's for you, Rob. <laughs> um uh you know um to the ends of the earth is a uh, kiyoshi uh, kiyoshi kurosawa my apologies um film uh which Put some respect I respect on
1: that man's name
0: I uh yeah I had to um uh obviously watch this film to uh, make up my top 10 list and uh, rob it seemed it just absolutely shattered him you know he had this to say it's a perfect movie that's that's how his his description starts, no other film brought me so much joy and gratification as much as this Japanese under-the-radar film. Um, And since, Rob, it is absolutely like your movie, you know, number two on your list without giving away um, other select spots on on your list, um, could you please talk? I mean, I would love for your perspective mostly on this film.
2: Yes, I absolutely love this film. As soon as I saw it, I called both you guys up and said, "Please watch this movie." And uh, <laughs> I know I know you guys enjoyed it, but not as much as I did. But uh, I don't know. It's just one of those films where it reminded me a lot of one of my favorite movies, and that is Lost in Translation, because it's also about geographical uh, dislocation, where it's about uh, a young woman who's in a completely uh, different uh, country. In that, in this country is uh, uh, Uz- Uzbekistan, which is a uh, you know, country in the Middle East and, and Asia, but um, she's a reporter in the film, and she's trying to um, basically find her way in this country while she's there with her crew, and, and she's very afraid in the film. She's very suffocated with a lot of anxieties because she doesn't know the culture well. She often will go out and try to get groceries, and then she sees like a group of guys, and she runs off, and she feels very uncomfortable. She holds a lot of panics, panics and anxieties uh, throughout the film. But um, I think that's the beauty of the movie is that the film kind of taps into our deepest fears about other cultures and other uh, nations that that we often perceive. And that's really the the catharsis of the movie that brings it to its final conclusion where we see her have an epiphany in the film where she's able to appreciate, you know, humanity for what we are, because in the day we might have different, language barriers that keep us apart different cultures we have different expressions and we're all very different which is the beauty of this world But we also have a lot of prejudices and anxieties and fears and misconceptions about this but really in the day it's really the uh, human condition that really brings us together and what makes it so universal and what's a great moment in that film that clarifies this and when she goes into the police office the police station and she's Completely drilled, and then there's a, a horrible earthquake that happened in Tokyo, or actually a nuclear spill. And her, she thinks her boyfriend might be in that. And the cops kind of yeah. drop the charges on her. It's just a really pivotal moment in the film that shows that we all are as one in this uh, world of human horrors. But uh, no, truly a, a very uh, vulnerable movie. That the elite actress in that film, played by. Uh, Akutsa Mida is, is absolutely wonderful in this film. She she has a lot of uh, expressions in the film. And it's also one of those movies where every scene after the other was just so terrific and great in the film. And whether it's her covering reports in the film, and one great moment I love too as well, guys, is the moment where she is covering these uh, rides in the country at this mm-hmm. carnivore sure. fair. And, sure. and, in the, the, and, and she's doing this take after take, and then even... Uh, kurosawa shows their misconceptions because she looks at this young japanese woman not as a young woman but as a child because that's how men perceive women in that film so that was quite telling there's just a lot of great subtleties in the film i loved every single moment of this movie it really brought uh, just a, a sense of gratification for me that not many movies have done from last year
0: well that's good man i'm i'm very happy to hear that you know i if, if you're listening to this and you've never heard of the film obviously uh, log on to de facto film reviews and and read uh, Rob's top 10 uh, Noah's top 10 and and read the review for to the ends of the earth you know maybe maybe you'll like it um, it's obviously an acquired taste I don't think anybody would deny that I don't um, if you were to watch it I think there there's like a large possibility that it would completely astound you or leave you a, a little bit cold much like a lot of the films that 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 uh, um, seem to be on critics' list this year, such as The Nest. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I think it's, it's something to watch, especially if you uh, consider yourself um, a cinephile or you, uh, you love films like Lost in Translation, like Rob said. Um, you, you know, it's, I, I would recommend giving it a watch. But, um, yeah, on, on that note, it, it's time for all of us to list our favorite film of the year, and, and I know that uh, Rob and Noah, you, you actually share the same uh, favorite film of the year. And that is, of course, uh, Chloe Zhao's uh, exceptionally uh, widely praised film, uh, Nomadland, which I unfortunately was unable to see because of uh, just tyrannical, uh, unapologetic uh, secrecy for the screeners that they gave out <laughs> for this, this thing. I mean... Uh, we, we were trying for so long, Rob and I were, to get a screener so I could see it to talk about it with you guys, but I, I don't think it's any secret that everybody is loving this film, so um, I would just love if you guys said, like, two or three sentences about, you know, why it exceptionally moved you, and where do you think Chloe Zhao is, is headed in the future?
1: Oh, I guess I'll go. Yeah, um... <laughs> I'll, I'll speak a little more than two sentences, but I'll just speak quickly about my experience with this. So this, I have to say, is my favorite film that I have seen since Moonlight. And Moonlight was a very pivotal film for me because it, it opened up my senses, and cinematic uh, senses, to a whole new viewpoint and more other filmmakers as well, and amongst many other things. This film... Really, it's the closest thing really to like a religious experience I've had watching a film in a long time. It's similar to what Roger Ebert wrote in his review of Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life, how no other film had quite connected with his own personal experience. I That's how I felt with this film. It really, especially with this pandemic, it is... um, I'll, I'll keep my word short, Jake, just because you haven't seen it yet, but I would say right. this film really, it really took me on a journey that I'll never forget my time watching this, um, just the screener um, in my apartment. It gave me such a profound emotional catharsis that when it was done, I didn't realize that I was just sitting there in silence for five minutes with just tears streaming down my face. (laughs) It wasn't until like I woke my, like I woke myself up out of like my, my shock almost that that I realized just how much of an impact it had made on me. And I got to see it again a second time and still the same thing. It's so beautiful. This is, um, rightfully so like the front runner for all awards Chloe Zhao is with with two three films under her belt one of one of the most accomplished filmmakers at least of this degree in their careers i mean she's she's doing the marvels eternals film which is going to come out maybe sometime at the end of this year which can't wait to see that. So this will be in some IMAX theaters right now, but it'll be available in other theaters and drive-ins, and exclusively to stream on Hulu February nineteenth. Um, so yeah, that's. Check if, it you out. Mo- <laughs> if you want to read, if you want to read more, check out um, our top tens. I write a little more about it, but um, yeah, just just an experience, uh, a journey, an odyssey that I'm never gonna forget. And Rob, yes
2: by far my favorite film of the year it's uh, i rated it four out of four stars i consider it a uh, true masterpiece of, of modern cinema and it's really a, a truly ravishing work uh you, you know Noah brought up Terence Malick and Epert's love for that, and if anything, this film is very Malick in many ways, but she's outdoing Malick in many ways in this film as well. Like mm-hmm. I wish Malick would be making more films like this, because he really hasn't had a truly stellar work since The Tree of Life, uh, sad to say. Not to say that he hasn't made some good films since, but nothing's really right. hit me on that level since. But it really is a very spiritual film, like uh, Noah brought up. Everything from the landscape, cinematography in the film, the use of the sunsets is quite Uh, You know, rich and and poetic, but uh, it's it's very much a great character study as well about Francis McDormand's character embarking on this journey in this community of nomads, and I think we're now living in a time where people are going to have more epiphanies in life, because especially after this pandemic, talk about a film being released at the right time, like I was going Mm -hmm. through a lot of these own self-discoveries and personal journeys just last year, I found myself going on a road trip before I even seen this movie, but... I think there's more to life than to just working in an office and living in a mundane life, staying inside a lot. We have to really need to venture out and experience life more and experience uh, you know, nature and get in touch with our mind and spirit more. And Zhao captures these very familiar topics of self-discovery, but she's able to mold it in a very profound way that's quite telling about the times we're in. Because the film does take place right after the Great Recession, after the collapse of the big banks and where a lot of people were left looted from their life earned savings that destroyed a lot of livelihoods that led to a lot of people embarking on their own journeys and reinventing themselves and the film taps into a lot of that stuff but it really is a truly profound film about the human condition and our place in this natural world. Yeah I'll say
1: specifically it evokes this sense of hope and melancholy that is like verbatim the exact same feeling that I've been wrestling with over the past year. Like, sure. Completely. And it's, yeah, yeah it's just otherworldly. It's extraordinary.
2: The film will be coming on Hulu soon, and I hope that it's going to be released wider in theaters because it's not been released theatrically around here at all. Um, but I would seriously, this is one film I would go out again and see. Like, Promise In One was one of those films where I put on my double mask, I put my face shield on, and luckily I was the only one in the theater along with one other person, and, uh, but I want it to experience the sensory film on this on the big screen granted I get this I did get to see it on a big screen or a festival experience but um, I really want to see this film again on the big screen
0: that's great yeah um, yeah i I, um, I just wanted to say really quick that uh, you know of course of course there's um, always films that people um, can't be exposed to until, you know, a year or so after they're released initially, which is a travesty, and and Nomadland seems to be um, of that nature, so uh, of course if I, when I get around to seeing it, uh, if it ends up uh, dethroning uh, one of the films on my top ten, I will of course mention it in a later podcast episode, but uh, my favorite film of the year, uh, without having seen Nomadland and Minari, um, which I of course will eventually see... Uh, is absolutely the Taiwanese uh, gangster family drama, A Son, which we talked briefly about at the start of the podcast. But I really don't know if there was another film that uh, quite engaged me the way that that one did. It's in many ways uh, reminiscent of films like, like we said, City of God, uh, The Godfather, um, The Place Beyond the Pines, in in which it spans multiple years following this family um, that... Goes through so many different changes. At first, we have uh, one of their sons, uh, um, uh, Aho, who is played uh, exceptionally um, uh, by Chin Ho Wu. Um, you know, he's uh, he's got this interesting uh, dynamic uh, with his family, and that he is sort of the poster child. Um, and then we have obviously. Uh, their second son, who is also, uh, ironically named Ehau, who is pronounced very, uh, similarly, but, um, yeah, one of them ends up going to, uh, Juvie for a petty crime that they're involved with, and while he's in Juvie, uh, the family undergoes certain changes, including, like, an unwanted pregnancy of Ehau's, uh, um, uh, love interest, who they did not know about, and a, a certain change of pace in the second act, which, uh, comes very shocking and tragic, and um, it says a lot about brotherhood and uh, and family expectations about how uh, fathers view their sons, mothers um, react to their um, their husbands' expectations of their sons, and uh, honestly, there's so much to unpack with the film that uh, it's it's really hard for me to sum up in uh, a couple sentences why you should see this, but. Um, if you are, if you find yourself uh, a fan of uh, rich thematic experiences uh, like those films that we mentioned, um, I think A Sun easily ranks up there with the best of them and has possibly the greatest cathartic ending of the entire year on a on a bridge um, on a highway um, and th- which cuts between that and the um, a mountaintop, which uh, honestly is some of the most beautifully shot. Uh, Aesthetics of the Year. Um, but, but yeah, the director, uh, Chung Mong Hong, uh, say say his name ten times fast, um, <laughs> uh, he made a 2013 film uh, called Soul, um, which is almost like a, a pseudo-horror film about possession, which I'm very interested in revisiting now, that, uh, that I've seen a son, and supposedly that was also submitted um, to the Academy Awards, uh, but obviously it, it did not win anything that year. Um, we should also mention, Rob, it won every single award, um, in, in its home country, which is basically the Taiwanese Oscars. Um, I I really don't know how another way to accurately describe how massive of an achievement that is. Um, but yeah, I, I think if you were to watch A Sun, this a criminally underseen masterpiece, um, it, it's pretty much for everybody. I don't know if you guys would agree with that. But if you, if you have siblings, uh, if you have ever felt the weight of family expectations, this is pretty much a must-see.
2: Oh, I agree with you. I actually think that it's one of those films like Parasite or City of God, or even like The Best of Youth, where I think that if audiences watched it, it's a foreign film, which is already hard to sell, but I think that it's so universal and engaging on its own that it's very, it could be very celebrated if more people watched it. There's nothing overly uh, complex about the movie. It's not a demanding watch by any means. It's very uh, compelling, like a Francis Ford Coppola film. It has the scope of a Francis Ford Coppola film as well, and that's why I loved The Best of Youth as well. And this reminded me of that in many ways because of the passage of time and the the use of the uh, family dynamics as well comes off quite strong i also love the theme of the the brotherhoods that you that you mentioned but uh yeah certainly a like we mentioned earlier in the podcast an underseen film i'm very happy that you watched this i remember i saw this film and i just told you guys to venture out and see it and you guys both did and both seemed to very much like it and jake ended up being your favorite of the year and uh it's certainly an extraordinary piece of cinema that i really hope finds its audience and it's going to take us to constantly recommend and remind people <laughs> so does they get lost in oblivion.
0: Yeah, I would agree. And, uh, yeah, I guess with that being said, we, we should probably run through our top tens, uh, which of course your guys is public on de facto Rob's list and Noah's list. Both have their own separate links, um, with, with some thoughts on each film. Um, of course I will let them list theirs off really quick, but in, From 10 to number 1, my top 10 goes a little something like this. At number 10, we have uh, Sound of Metal, followed by Baccarat at 9, American Utopia at 8, Soul at number 7, Blood and Flesh, The Real Life and Ghastly Death of Al Adamson at number 6, Promising Young Woman, Breaking Through at number 5, Another Round, Thomas Vinterberg's film with Mads Mikkelsen at number 4, which I found... Uh, completely ravishing and moving in its terms uh, and stance on moderation and just loving life um, and finding those things that, that make you open up to those around you. Uh, number three, Deerskin, the exceptionally manic metrosexual filmmaker odyssey, which turns into a serial killer film. Um, the Nest at number two, and of course, uh, A-Sun being my favorite uh, film of the year. Um, yeah, Noah, do you want to list off yours and then we'll end with Rob's?
1: Yep. Uh, so number 10, I have never rarely, sometimes, always. Uh, number nine, I have another round at number eight. I have Baccarat, uh, number seven. I have the five bloods number six. I have uh, one night in Miami number five, Minari, Number four, I have Promising Young Woman. Number three, I have Possessor, or Possessor Uncut, as they dubbed it. Possessor. Uh, Number two, Sound of Metal. And number one, Nomadland. Both great lists, gentlemen. My number 10 is Sophia
2: Coppola's On the Rocks. Number nine, Sound of Metal. Number eight, Martin Eden. Number seven, 14. Number six, The Nest. Number five, Kajillionaire. Number four, Promising Young Woman. Number three, never really, sometimes, always. Number two, to the ends of the earth. And my favorite film of twenty twenty would be Chloe Zhao's
0: Nomad Land. All exceptional films, gentlemen. And if you are listening to this and um, you've seen these films, any of them, uh, p- drop a comment. You know, make sure you follow us on um, your favorite, you know, podcast streaming platform. This is not our only podcast that we have planned, and. Um, Please engage with us on DeFactoFilmReviews.com where we are posting reviews consistently. Uh, Noah is currently uh, covering a ton of films at the Sundance uh, Digital Film Festival. Oh
1: boy, Um, am I.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and uh, we we really look forward to engaging with you and having a conversation there. Um, uh, Please bear with us over the next podcast or two as we iron out some of the technical flaws, and eventually we will be sitting in the same room together, um, not doing this over uh, the internet, so um, there's lots to look forward to this year, not only in cinema, but at DeFactoFilmReviews.com, and we have uh, some very exciting news that uh, I'm sure we will be announcing over the year, so um, yeah, thank you guys so much for listening, and thank you Rob, and thank you Noah for joining me on this two and a half hour odyssey through the best films of the year yeah yeah thank you yeah and uh with that being said uh we will talk to all of you very soon bye-bye